you, yep. you can probably just, uh, uh, I'm going to invent a verb, falcon your way through it. I'll just run on adrenaline all the way through there. You know, I could take an ATV through a swamp and get this done. <laughs> Live from the Talking Joe Studios, it's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 today, baby, I got your money. It's me, Mark, and welcome to the Talking Joe, G.I. Joe Comics Podcast. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website. Talkingjoe.co.uk is that website. Today, we'll be talking about the Falcon Spotlight issue, G.I. Joe 288, which is a follow-up to our episode 141, released a few weeks ago, where we talked to the artist of the issue, Cuba Bowl. So if you've not listened to that, uh, you can dig into that to get the whole behind-the-scenes story. Uh, this episode, we are doing our normal deep dive into the latest issue, and joining me, as always, it's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Mm. Hello, Mark, <laughs> uh, and hello, listeners, and hello to our guest, who Mark's going to introduce right he's, now. He's waiting in the wings. It's our man. Uh, here, let me say a few words first. Yeah, joining us today, special guest Carson Taxis, curator of the Three D Joe's website, author of Collecting the Art of GI Joe. Uh, the Operation Recall Toy Project and Lieutenant Falcon Cosplayer Extraordinaire and so much more. Here he is, uh, a long overdue special guest onto the show. It is Carson. Here he is. Welcome, Carson. Yo, Joe. So thank you guys for having me. I've uh, been a big fan of the show and I was very happy when uh, Tim Finn kind of came on board and it looks like it's a, quite the love connection. You guys have a good rapport and I'm happy to see you guys uh, keeping this going, man. Every time Tim's promotional ads, uh, you know, it just his social media shares with his face and the expression. And you can immediately tell how he feels about each book. So it's a very like genuine way to uh, kind of promote the series. So I've enjoyed it, man. I like what you guys are doing. Keep up the good work. And thanks for having me on the show. It's great Excellent. to have you, Carson. Good to have you because yeah, it feels like an oversight that we've got uh, as far as we have almost up to 150 episodes with, without having you on wow. because you're such a uh, important figure in the uh, the community a real force uh, and uh, it could never be overstated enough um you know the, the what what you are what you're doing in terms of your your contributions particularly around sort of building that the, the magnificent 3d joe's uh, website it's a it's a real uh, asset to the community and very specifically uh, our co-host for our devils do disavowed episode, jay cordray uses many images from 3d joes for the youtube video versions of awesome. our of our podcast and just last week was saying man i need to give a shout out to carson and 3d joes because some of these pictures come from that site awesome I, you know, it's a labor of love. And the crazy thing is um, I'm coming up on 10 years of building 3D Joes. Uh, this year, 2022 will be the 10 year anniversary. And it's just flown by. Like I literally, I just never get tired of it, man. Whenever I've got some open time, I've got a laundry list of, you know, to do items for <laughs> building the website. It's never done. Literally last night, I spent three hours updating every single file card and card back and mint on card photo of the packaging for the 1989 figures and uh but it but it always feels fulfilling to work on spin the figures around and see how the costumes resolve themselves from every angle and you know just little pieces of feedback like that really make it fulfilling because i feel like i'm helping 
you know, the community and, and we're all intertwined in this crazy GI Joe universe. And the fact mm. that I've been able to contribute something that's so useful to so many people is amazing. Um, you guys, of course, are more than welcome to use all the graphics you want on your YouTube videos. I have people reach out every now and then. They're like, hey, can I use your stuff for my YouTube video? I'm like, absolutely. Just put in a little disclaimer at the bottom, you know, images courtesy of 3djoes.com so people can know where to find more of the good stuff, right? Like we we work really hard creating top quality image assets and we're never uh, satisfied with it. And that's why I was redoing 1989 last night. <laughs> we, and there's when I started I out, the... it was, you know. Specifically, the comic book artists as well. They owe you a, owe you this sort of invaluable <laughs> kind of piece of contribution. That there's this amazing yeah. reference that they can go back to when they're when they're having to draw these things in the books. Yeah, if uh, if uh, I, I drew uh, I drew an amazing Transformers uh, fan fiction comic when I was in um, eighth and ninth and tenth <laughs> and eleventh and twelfth grade, <laughs> and uh, all I had was uh, Transformers Universe, the four issue miniseries. Mm -hmm. and uh like pausing vhs tapes and right. uh there is you know in transformers universe uh there is one character where you see a front and a back view and that's optimus prime because he gets two pages and all the other characters you gotta know what they look <laughs> like from the back uh yep <laughs> so uh very specifically it's like what does the back of the hiss 2 look like says random gi joe comics artist and we're certainly past the era where uh, someone drawing an issue of G.I. Joe is going to get sent toy samples. Um, also, we should specifically mm -hmm. call out, uh, Carson, the great work that you and your um, small team of, uh, of volunteers do on 3djoes.com mm -hmm. because there is a very, very, very well-known G.I. Joe toy and comic and merchandise reference website that everyone knows and loves, and it's been around for more than 20 years and it's it's the thing that you get when you google mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff and unfortunately that site mm -hmm. uh, is having uh, some permanent technical problems and and you're like there's a very yeah. positive push that we as joe fans who communicate with other joe fans can make in encouraging people to go to 3djoes.com because it is uh, in a very, I say this in a very positive way. It is, it is carrying the banner. It is carrying mm. the torch for that other well-known GI Joe toy reference site that is falling on some hard times. Yeah, I, dude, I appreciate you saying that uh, wholeheartedly. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say the name if you don't mind me. Sure, 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 sure. But you know, <laughs> and the guys that were running Yo Joe are friends of mine, and we're colleagues with fellow archivists. The company was from under them uh, to a Canadian company that just wants ad revenue. And so it's, you know, it's it's very sad that that happened, but we all got together, we talked collaboratively and we decided, you know, what's the best path forward and building out 3D Joe's uh, appeared to be the, the quickest and safest and least expensive way. Cause we considered, you know, do we do a, a new URL and build out a new infrastructure and kind of start from scratch, but combine our assets. Like we considered a bunch of different stuff. And what we ended up doing was Kind of selecting people that wanted to work on specific areas and giving them admin administrative editorial authorship and so there's there's a lot to come hopefully uh, i will say that it is a mostly thankless task and it's not revenue driven right so people have to like really want to do this for years on end with you will get thanks like you guys just thanked me today and it feels great but you won't get a lot of money from it <laughs> you know uh you guys have probably noticed we don't we don't even run ads on 3d joes and that's like my line in the sand i 
never ever want to run ads on 3d joes i want it to be a minimalist uh mobile friendly experience and so i've i've stuck to that so anyway i appreciate every single person that has been helping me along the way there are dozens of volunteers so i won't try to name them now but literally there are dozens and dozens of people that help me build this website out that volunteer assets that mail me toys that you know do whatever they have to do uh, that edit photoshop images for me and I couldn't do it without each and every one of them. So I appreciate you guys giving a giving a shout out to it. I will say the part that is really going to get a boost in 2022 is that pre-production tab. We've already got five or six creator profiles under there. And those creator profiles are like each one of them is a book in and of itself. It's uh, incredible. Um, I think on the Bill Merkline creator profile that we just put out, there's 200 images um, on the Ed Morrill uh, creator profile that I'm working on right now, there's 11 pages uh, in, in Microsoft Word without any images. So it's just a tremendous amount of content. And we're very excited to introduce some of these creators that were not so well known to the community in a very kind of, you know, authoritative documentarian way. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty exhaustive. It's pretty comprehensive coverage. So that's been exciting. And that's definitely the direction that I'm most excited about for 2022 is building out the pre-production tab with the creator profiles and the pre-production pages for individual products. So. Um, a, an amazing, an, amaz an amazing website. That's only going to get more amazing. I appreciate and, it. Yeah. So, so you're and looking the things at one that pre-production. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. The, the that you, this only thing dropped last, last week or so it's the, the, the Cobra, uh, the Cobra Trooper, I guess it would be commonly known mm -hmm. known as, but um, just some of the little tidbits that that were included from from this sort of, you know, you think you know you know it all, and then there's there's something like this that comes along that sort of blows your mind. You think I've seen, you know, been looking at this for the best part of part of forty years, uh, and right. sort of assu assuming these things and new knowledge, like the, that loop on the on the arm of the Cobra Trooper, that's piano right. wire for garroting. I was like, wow. I Absolutely. Just, so, so for four years, know? I thought that was like decorative, like maybe a ranking of some sort, some kind of insignia, you know, like some something to indicate since, you know, I, I don't know, I just assumed that it was kind of a military thing. And then you find out, no, that's two pieces of wood as handles with piano wire that mm. you use to strangle somebody and cut off their <laughs> arteries. <laughs> like, that's crazy. It takes the Cobra Trooper to like a whole another level of like psychotic. So I just, I just want to, I just want to toss in that. I always thought it was sort of like what's on the other arm. It's like two, two bullets or two right. fla flares or two shotgun shells. Yeah. So the, uh, the gun on his chest is, is what a grenade launcher. And then those mm. two shells are grenades. And I'm with Tim. I thought for the longest time that was maybe a flare gun or a signal gun. Cause it's kind of a weird looking gun. And I've never mm. seen a grenade launcher that looks like that. So it's useful, you know, to, to see these pre-production drawings because they give us a lot of insight into what the designer was actually thinking when he created these designs. So everybody knows that's a Ron Rudat illustration. I believe he created it in 1981. And it's so cool to be able to read these annotations and figure out exactly what Ron was thinking while he was putting this together. Yeah, it's it's incredible. So, um, sort of, it def definitely you can, you know, with the website expanding the way it is as well, you can just uh, lose yourself in there for for hours. <laughs> so it's uh, awesome. it's a it's a great it's a great great uh, thing for for us as the the community. Um, 
so so um i know you've got you've got to, to get on so so and and we i think would all between us um you know happily talk for for hours on any given aspect of of gi joe so so let's uh let's keep keep on uh keep on target um all right. So, so specifically, we're talk, going to be talking about uh, two eight eight and and the, uh, Falcon um, on on this uh, show. But uh, before we get quite to that, maybe maybe let's just give a sort of brief plotted kind of overview of you know how did you get into to GI Joe and specifically uh, the the comics, and then um, how did you find yourself to this you know connection um, with uh, Lieutenant Falcon. Yeah, so they're, it's kind of intertwined. I, I think, like many of you, I was growing up in the 80s, and the cartoon was on TV, and that was the first thing that caught my eye as a young, I believe, five-year-old uh, was when I first saw the cartoon on TV, and I just immediately loved it. I mean, I, to me, I always tell people this, I think the cartoon was intended to capture that younger audience, and the comic book was intended to carry us through our teenage years if we would, if we would stay hooked in and involved for that long. The comic book was always, you know, more mature and you could grow with it, whereas the cartoon was just kind of silly and fun. So the cartoon <laughs> sucked me in first and I begged my mom for two straight years. I'm not exaggerating to buy me some G.I. Joe's. <laughs> she just she wasn't feeling it. She didn't want to do it, I guess. But she finally broke <laughs> down in 1986. Um, so I was seven years old when I got my first G.I. Joe. I was born in 79. So I was seven years old when I first got my first G.I. Joe. Her and my brother picked it up at the store and then they came and picked me up at my friend's house and they had this G.I. Joe with them. And I was like simultaneously thrilled and excited because it was my first one. But I was also a little bit let down because it was dial tone. And this was 1986. <laughs> you could have had bats or beachhead or snake eyes or any number of other somewhat cooler figures than dial tone, let's be honest. And I love dial tone. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with them. Nothing wrong with him, but, you know, spoiled little kid got his first Joe and wanted it to be a different one. Um, so that was my my first foray into the the toys themselves. The comic book, I, I walked into Walden Books, which was in our local shopping mall. We didn't have a comic book shop in my town at that time. And so I walked into Walden Books and saw it on the spinner rack, and I was already hooked on the cartoon, and I believe I already had a toy in hand by that time. And so I picked up the comic book, and that was it, just a dose of that made me i think it changed the trajectory of my life it made me a lifelong <laughs> comic book consumer and a lifelong comic book reader and it also pushed me into a life of creation uh by sixth grade i started drawing comic books by 12th grade i had drawn six full-length comic books 22 to 24 pages each that i had written uh, most of them I created, I think four out of the six, I created all of my own characters. So I would create all the little bio pages and everything too. One of them I did was uh, an X-Men one. And I even colored that one with Prismacolor pencils, you know? So the comic books literally turned me on to a life in the creative arts. Now, I ended up going to college at the College of Design at NC State. And by that point, uh, you know, 1997 through 2002, I ended up getting a degree in mass communications and a degree in art and design. And I transitioned from wanting to be a comic book illustrator to doing video and animation because to be candid, I didn't want to be a starving artist. And I was going to a lot of the comic conventions and I was talking to the premier artist of the time. I remember uh, Joe Madrera, who was a cover artist for X-Men at the time, having a really formative conversation with him about the uh, kind of the economic insecurity of comic book art. And he was on top. And I was nowhere near as good as him, nor would I ever be, was the way that I felt about it. So that's what kind of made me pivot to something more technologically challenging, where I could separate myself 
from some of the other artists that were running al alongside me in just the illustration area. So I feel like me and Tim Finn have a lot of commonalities. Tim, don't you teach animation? I do. Yeah. So we've got a lot of commonalities. Did the, did the comic books and cartoons put you in that direction as a kid? Yeah, but, but, um, lots of, lots of animation. I mean, GI Joe and Transformers were my favorites, but, mm -hmm. uh, yes, I was watching too much TV and, and yeah. uh, <laughs> my first comic was GI Joe and, and I mm -hmm. became a voracious comics person immediately because of that issue. I, I think, you know, I was listening to an article or listening to a video interview with a guy from Mile High Comics and Jim Shooter uh, just last week. Josh Egebin posted it and they were talking about how G.I. Joe was by far the largest um, mail order comic book subscription based comic book that Marvel Comics had in the mid 80s. I think that comic converted or brought more people into the comic book, you know, kind of domain. Uh, than any other comic because people had exposure to G.I. Joe through the toys on the aisles and the cartoon on TV. I think G.I. Joe, the comic was a gateway drug for tens of thousands of people. I really do think that. Importantly, I have, the I comic no data. book. No, well, I mean, the proof is that the comic book was advertised on television. Like we, conflate, we conflate the animation that was used with footage of kids playing with toys. And then like mm -hmm. the ad was technically for the toys, but then a different mm -hmm. version of that ad without the footage of the kids, but yep. only the animation, which would end with Jackson Beck saying what happens next, find out in Marvel Comics. Marvel um, Comics. That yep. absolutely, because... How many other comic books were advertised on television in the eighties? Zero. So that was a first. That, that was absolutely that is absolutely that yeah. is a link. Um, yeah. It's unacceptable. Look, GI Joe is beating us in the snow. GI Joe is fighting Cobra, the enemy on land, the sea, and air. And he's beating us in the air. In a desperate race, soaring and diving in a great sky chase. A real There's only one man who can help us. It's him. What's in store for G.I. Joe? Find out in Marvel Comics. Would you talk about the character of Falcon specifically? What is your connection cool. to this character? So this happened pretty quickly. Like I, like I just mentioned, my first actual uh, retail purchase was Dalton in 86, right? So I was only able to convince my mom to buy me figures from 86 forward. In 1987, one year into collecting these hardcore, because once I broke her down, the dam like it, it crashed <laughs> open and we were buying Joe's left and right. She could just tell how happy it made me. And I had my little checklist and I was going to karate class and trading doubles with other people to get the figures I had missed from the earlier years and stuff. So I went in hardcore. I immediately just became a collector and had to have them all. Um, but one year later, 1987, I'm growing up in Southern Pines, North Carolina. My dad is driving 20 minutes to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to serve with the 5th Special Forces Group as the executive officer of 5th Group. He worked with 5th uh, Group, 7th Group, I think 3rd Group, and he helped stand up JSOC, which is the Joint Special Operations Command, back in around 83, I believe. So we moved to North Carolina so my dad could be stationed in Fort Bragg. And he went on to do just basically special ops for the next uh, 13 years, from 82 to 93 or 94. And so when Lieutenant Falcon came out, I was like, hell yes, this is my dad. Like we had the same tiger stripe fatigue uh, pants, you know, shirts, the green beret, obviously. Um, we also had the airborne uh, berets. 
in our in my dad's um storage we would pull that stuff up out and dress up like him you know he was just a larger than life kind of like heroic figure to us he was gone a lot he left like the entire year of 1989 he served in el salvador helping the democratically elected government try to fight off a basically a, a guerrilla rebellion there um so my dad was my biggest hero and then to see him immortalized in plastic in 1987 to see the types of fatigues and, and accoutrement that we had in our attic that we put on and dressed up in right there, wrapped up around the GI Joe figure. And then to flip it over and look at the file card and see that this dude is from Fayetteville, which is right down the road from Southern Pines on the other side of Fort Bragg is where Fayetteville is. And then to read the bio and see that he was, a, I believe it says he's a fifth group executive officer there as well. And then uh, Project Blue Light, um, the counterterrorism unit, my dad also uh, went to language school in Monterey, California and learned Farsi and a couple other languages. So all this stuff lines up really well with what my dad's actual real life experience was. So, man, it was just surreal to me. This I think this created this like lifelong. OK, G.I. Joe is just kind of my thing for life. And I think my dad, <laughs> you know, my dad was flattered by it. I'm sure like what dad wouldn't want to be a superhero to their kid, you know, um, so one year I remember telling him because he's only five, nine and I'm six, three. Right. So I remember telling him, hey, if you can find some tiger stripe fatigues that'll act actually fit me now, I will dress up. I will cosplay as Lieutenant Falcon. <laughs> and uh, the the very next Christmas came around and he bought me some tiger stripe fatigues, like some authentic tiger stripe fatigues. So then all I needed was like his web gear and his canteens and his flashlight and all the other good stuff that he still had around. And uh, we took a trip to Fort Bragg together and bought a couple other pieces that were missing from the outfit. And that's how the Lieutenant Falcon uh, cosplay came along. So what better way to, you know, have fun with my dad? It was just like a fun little adventure to go on with him to like trick out this costume properly, get the right communications gear, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's his Vietnam watch that I'm wearing right there on my left wrist. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, on my right hand, not a lot of people know this, but my dad made a ring when he was in El Salvador in 1989. He took some family gold down there. I think he felt bad about having to leave for the whole year and he wanted to do something special for us. So he made up a special forces ring on the front of it is the Deo Preso Liber um, symbol. And then on the sides of it are the El Salvador seal, the year 89, the airborne wings and my initials. And so on my right hand, I'm wearing a special forces ring, you know, so it's it's all a very cool tribute to my dad. And that's all it was like, you know, I'm friends with the people from the finest. I had met them go through going to all the conventions. I think what they do is amazing. They kind of bring these characters to life. And so I wanted to try it and I gave my dad the challenge and he rose to the occasion. And so I did it. So, cool. so I've um, got, um, I just share something quickly here on this, on the screen. I've got <laughs> <laughs> the, this, that this is the trading card that, that you included yeah. in with, uh, with the slip case for, yeah. uh, for the, for the art of book. And, uh, right. there, and you've got a little file card there with yourself as uh, Lieutenant. That's Falcon, right. I, I got that. Super whole, cool. I, I love that series of trading cards. I absolutely love it because every one of those finest members like really put their passion, heart and soul into the costumes that they come up with. Some of them with like custom helmets and fabricated materials. Like mine was like more real world. So it was easier to pull together. A lot of the finest costumes are so much more imaginative and require a lot more heavy lifting than mine did. So all the respect in the world to the people at the finest that work their butts off to make memorable costumes to make people's convention experience more exciting and more memorable. So, so. this, this wonderful photo of you, um, uh, disembarking from the back of a, 
see 130 um, who 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 took this photo we should credit the photographer who took this photo? absolutely you know tim i really appreciate you saying that every time i post something related to this i always try to tag him as well uh so his name is joe goldston and he has dressed up as a cobra trooper on a number of occasions uh when we did the the falcon glider and the viper glider he was the cobra viper uh pilot obviously so he's he's on the bad guys. I'm on the good guys, but we're the best of friends. Uh, we've been going to all the conventions together since 2012, and uh, we, yeah, we have a lot of fun with our hobby. You know, he's a great guy. When you go to conventions, though, you are more. I'm I'm painting the picture for people who haven't been to conventions or, or haven't been to any recently. When you were at GI Joe conventions, you are more often. Uh, tabling at your booth, selling mm -hmm. your books and posters, and you are less often walking around in costume for photo ops, correct? Yes. For, well, for the most part, the books that I made um, for good or for bad, they sold out in a year and a half. So I haven't actually had a retail table for the last couple of years because I haven't had any books to sell. And uh, it, I decided after, I think, one or two shows of bringing posters to it that it wasn't worth the hassle. <laughs> so, you know, if you guys want $5 posters, they're at 3djoes.com slash posters, and it pays for the website. So please check that out. But, uh, but yeah, I've been sold out, Tim, for the last couple of years. So what I've been doing, um, like at the Joe Fest this last year, I put on a panel, and that was a lot of fun. I love to do kind of educational content when I can. And, uh, and I worked with the Joe Declassified guys at their booth. Um, shout out to Joe Declassified. The pre-production pages that we're putting together now are happening in large part due to the collaboration that came out of this whole kind of Yojo debacle with it getting frozen out and everybody getting together and banging their heads together and figuring, okay, what's the right path forward? Those guys definitely, they signed up, man. They said, you know, let's do this. Let's, let's, you know, bring our powers together and, what they had been doing for many, many years is sharing a tremendous amount of pre-production stuff, but they were only doing it at shows and they would have the most amazing booth at any of these conventions, two ups, sculpts, paintings, just all kinds of pre-production stuff, but you could only see it at the show. And for many years they did, uh, I think nine years in a row, they were printing a magazine that they gave out for free. Like these people do not do it for the money. They do it for the love of pre-production and so we've we've partnered up and started uh, to roll their pre-production out on 3D Joe's. And that's like I was saying, going to be the primary effort for me this year is to build out pre-production. But so if, if you see me at a show, I'll probably be at the Joe Declassified booth helping them do what they do because I believe in their mission. Cool. Have you got uh, a next appearance planned? Oh, I'll definitely be at Joe Fest. So to me, Joe Fest was kind of the natural successor to Joe Con. It was already a two-day show with a, a bonus kind of Friday night get-together if people want a three-day show. I really like how Ed Schumacher, who puts on Joe Fest, has taken great efforts to include the creators and mm -hmm. some of the less uh, less frequented creators that maybe the, the G.I. Joe Collectors Club didn't do a great job of connecting with. I was able to get Mark Pennington there last year. He's the figure designer that followed up Ron Rudat. We did a panel mm -hmm. um, together, so that was great. Uh, Ron Rudat, uh, him and Jenny had their wedding anniversary. Ed Schumacher was like, let's make it a VIP dinner and we'll pay for it. And so <laughs> nice. we, we, we had like 30 or 40 fans there for Ron and Jenny's anniversary dinner. That was amazing. So I really like, I, I feel like Ed Schumacher and the Joe Fest guys are giving the creators the respect that they, that they have earned. And so I'm, I'm all in on Joe Fest. Um, my other favorite that I really want to make it out to is Codename Iowa. Um, assembly required put on by Codename Iowa. 
So uh, Brian Sauer is a good friend of mine and he does amazing design work. And I just want to make it to that show because everything I've heard about it is that it feels like kind of a family gathering of really, you know, tight lifelong Joe fans. And I want to go be part of that family. I know Chris McLeod is a big fan. And Ron Ron Wagner lives in the area and he is often a guest or is always a guest. Yeah, I can't I can't remember a year that he wasn't a featured guest. Yeah. So that's a that's a big uh, selling point for Assembly Required. So I definitely want to make it to Assembly Required. It's just a, a bit more of travel for me. But, you know, I just got to get over that. I just need to make it happen. So um, so we've all right. So we've got this amazing photo of you. Oh, uh, who mm-hmm. uh, did you Photoshop the uh, the yellow, the blast from the shotgun? Yeah. Yeah, I added that. I added that. Yeah. All right. So. Oh, I was just going to say, we weren't able to fire live rounds. <laughs> we were, uh, this was at a battleship, I believe in South Carolina. And they had, so they had a battleship that we went on and shot a bunch of photos on. But just on the kind of the shore area right next to that battleship, they had this beautiful kind of Vietnam era recreation that had all kinds of props, different types of vehicles. And so this, this helicopter we were able to all load up in it and get these photos of like, we're going into a mission or we're coming out from the mission. They had a bunch of dugouts with sandbags and stuff. It was a very cool uh, space to do a photo shoot. So uh, yeah, I just came home. This was my favorite image because it was, it had such good motion to it. Like Joe Goldston did a really good, good job of, you know, kind of spray and pray shooting the heck out of it, super fast shutter speed. And he got some amazing, like, you know, you see Muskrat right there behind me, running off behind me. We're both clearly in motion. We're not posing. Like, it, it looks like we're actually, like, we've got some emotion and we're moving into combat. You know, we're not just kind of acting. At least that's, that's that was what I hope that people feel when they see that image. So All right, so t- t- take us through. So this photo is from several years ago. But then yes. all of a sudden, uh, last month in December of 2020, 21 an issue of gi joe is published with a similar drawing so what's the connection yeah so uh you know mark mentioned the book series early on uh the book series uh, collecting the art of gi joe is about a three and a half four year project we printed a thousand copies and i had those from you know after the kickstarter for about a year and a half well john royal who's an amazing cover artist reached out to me and he candidly said like, Hey, look, man, I love your collecting the art of GI Joe book series, but I'm a comic artist. And, uh, you know, I just don't have 200 bucks to throw at it. Is there anything that we could work out? And I was like, absolutely. I'm a lifelong GI Joe fan. I love your work on GI Joe. How about you just do a commission of Lieutenant Falcon for me? Cause he's my favorite. And he was like, all right, great. Just send me some reference material. So I didn't like just send him this photo. I promise <laughs> I sent a <laughs> bunch of other Lieutenant Falcon stuff. And I, in no way, expected that he was just going to draw the photo, right? That he was going to basically take that, that layout and composition and, and just um, do the John Royal on it, man. And, and so he did, <laughs> there was a black and white image. So that's the original commission that he did that we created, that we traded for the collecting the art of GI Joe book series. Right. So he posted that on social media and I think he got enough positive feedback on it. Let's be honest. We don't see a lot of Lieutenant Falcon in the comics. Right. And people generally trash him because of Don Johnson's role in the G.I. Joe movie and that kind of thing. So uh, when he posted this, it actually got a lot of really positive feedback. And so he was inspired by that to where he started going and pitching to Tom Waltz. Can we do a cover with Lieutenant Falcon? Because I think there's there's some demand for it. <laughs> so 
There was a brief segue. It, it actually ended up being another cover. Uh, if you'll notice in the last couple of years, there's been a couple Lieutenant Falcon covers and that all came from this kind of secret origin story. So <laughs> he went, he, he went and pitched Lieutenant Falcon to Tom. They're like, all right, cool. You know, just draw me up some ideas and we'll run with it. So the first thing that happened was the croc master and Lieutenant Falcon cover and uh, croc masters kind of coming in from the trees, like jumping in over them and Falcons surrounded by crocodiles. And it's a really cool piece. Um, so I actually ended up buying that original piece of art um, from John. And that, that was a fun experience. But then like a year and a half later, I think it was a year, year and a half. He actually reached back out to me and he was like, hey, man, you remember, you know, that that sketch that I did for you? <laughs> I like that so much. I want to pitch that being the centerpiece of a cover. I was like, are you freaking kidding me? That is crazy. <laughs> like the photo that I took wearing my dad's gear is going to be turned into a GI Joe cover. That was crazy. I literally never expected it. Um, he's like, yeah, are you cool with that? I was like, absolutely. So that's when he started working on the more refined image, which has cover girl and, you know, they're, they're coming kind of into a, um, but so he, he just basically came back and said, Hey, you know, that, that image of you running off the back of a helicopter, I want to turn that into a, fully fleshed out cover. I was like, absolutely go for it. <laughs> Let's do it. Let me know if you need anything. So, uh, next thing I, John's really cool about sending me kind of process stuff along the way. And so I was able to kind of follow along with that, but that's it. It's come full circle, you know, from dressing up like my dad to being on the cover of GI Joe. It's pretty, pretty insane. And, and to, to state the obvious, cause everyone listening knows that we're about to talk about this issue. Yep. This issue is all about Falcon. So this Which, this cover did, a, a lot of a lot of covers don't yeah. represent the the contents inside the mm -hmm. issue, and so not only do we have a cool right. I know I'm stating the obvious, but I feel like we need to we need to put a button on this thread, like logically, um, like Cover Girl's not in the issue, but right. uh, we rarely get a Falcon issue. We've never gotten a, a Falcon only spotlight issue, and mm -hmm. uh, and. Falcon gets both uh, cover A and, excuse me, cover B, and then also this uh, retailer incentive cover, which was a, uh, for every 10 copies that mm -hmm. a store ordered uh, of A or B combined, they, they were allowed to get uh, one copy of this uh, variant. That's right. Yeah, I had to have my local comic shop buy 50 copies of this issue <laughs> so, that I, <laughs> so, that I could get, so that I could get five of the variants. They were very happy to do it for me, you know. Wow. But, but yeah, Tim, we were talking about how covers are often so loosely connected to the interior contents of the book, uh, how that's not really a uh, priority anymore, it seems like, with a lot of these publishers. So how refreshing that we get some awesome Falcon covers with an awesome Falcon spotlight issue. I, I couldn't be happier, man. Sometimes life is really surreal, and this is definitely one of those surreal moments. I also appreciate that um, cover B, which is Kuber Bayal's drawing a falcon and then also mm -hmm. cover ri retailer incentive by uh royal and uh, and company uh that they are they are very different from each other and mm -hmm. it's funny when occasionally we've gotten a spotlight cover with a character and then one of the other covers is actually kind of similar even though two different mm -hmm. artists were doing them sort of separate from each other mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but you know here facing left facing right uh uh running not running um, mm -hmm. more sort of animation colors versus a much more muted palette, uh, solo versus with someone. Mm -hmm. Makes for, uh, these two covers make for a great contrast. And suddenly we like seem to have a wealth of uh, images of Falcon on the, on the front <laughs> of the book, which like never happened before. <laughs> it, it really didn't. It really didn't. He was, he was not a key element in the comic book. So it's been an interesting so, turn of events. 
you've you've got a long journey ahead of you, Carson. So so you do have to to push on and, and can't you can't unfortunately can't stick with us for for the full full discussion. But um, it'd be be fun to just get uh, your kind of higher level thoughts on on what you felt. Uh, yeah, generally what you thought of uh, of the issue. Sure. So sure, absolutely. Uh, um, you know, I, I like that it started with a small intimate moment of of him at the uh, JFK Center. I, I thought it was a nice way to, you know, bring in kind of the origin story. It's interesting to see the kind of modernization of the story of Falcon. Obviously, he can't be a Vietnam veteran, right? Um, he would just be too old for this era of readership. And so it's always it's always been interesting to me how they modernize the story. If that was, you know, 15 years ago, so he was there in 2006, the, the obviously ongoing wars in the Middle East were already started. Um, it was, it was, they did manage to work Vietnam into it, uh, you know, with his father being a Vietnam veteran. And there was some political statements there, you know, about how the DOD was not uh, willing to admit that his father was exposed to Agent Orange and that potentially killed him. Uh, we're okay with spoilers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've only spoiled the first couple pages, but, uh, but anyway, so I, I really liked the kind of uh, small and intimate scene that they introduced him with and the quick bit of history that you got in those first couple pages. Um, and then when we get into the actual, the meat of the story, this like modern day uh, current, I guess this is really a flashback though, because what this becomes is the origin story of mm -hmm. fast draw law and order and Lieutenant Falcon. So it's not really just a solo on Falcon. And I was, I was good with that. I appreciated that. I liked that they kept it kind of era specific so obviously us as kids and collectors, we got Law and Order, Fast Draw, and Lieutenant Falcon in 1987. And they, they stuck with that, right? So they introduced those three 1987 characters in this book. Um, I enjoyed the, the kind of language that Larry uses. Obviously, you know, he's a veteran. Uh, he knows his stuff. And so when he's talking about a butter bar, you know, I've heard my dad say butter bar with that kind of disdain uh, many times in his life. It's a, you know, a second lieutenant straight out of ROTC. You've got that one uh, vertical bar that's got that kind of gold bronze, bronze color to it. And, uh, you know, butter bars, they're coming out of four years of ROTC. They're not um, battle tested. And, you know, people like a, a sergeant that's been in for 15 years but worked his way up to get that get to that they have to answer to these butter bars and there's so there's this there's this bit of uh contention in the military between you know second lieutenants fresh out of school and people that are more seasoned um so i enjoyed that language but i really liked that larry was showing you know duke was the sergeant and he was the seasoned one and when falcon came along he was his brother and he was an officer but he might you know if he's just a second lieutenant he really hasn't earned his stripes that much not not like duke who's probably been in it and been through more. So that was cool to see that, that kind of part of the story set up. Um, you know, the whole, uh, what do you say? PFC, you'd rather come out of a, a butter bar than a PFC, a private first class. So they don't even put in the asterisks and explain necessarily what some of the acronyms stand for mm, anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's, there's this expectation of the reader that, Hey, if you don't understand something, you can look it up. Has that been y'all's experience with G.I. Joe lately that it's just kind of it's it's uh, giving the reader the benefit of the doubt that they know the military jargon by this point? Yeah, for quite quite a large extent, we've noticed that, that there there's some of these terms that, that that don't have the asterisks and editors notes mm -hmm. um, quite yeah. to the quite to the degree that, that there was in more more so in the original run. 
Yeah. And like as kids, they were very conscious of that. And there was editor's notes all over the place. You know, when LRRP, they, they might even put in pronunciation LERP, you know, or long range recon patrol or whatever. Um, I, I always loved growing up as a kid, reading the G.I. Joe comic, learning some stuff from Larry and then dropping it around my dad. <laughs> so so he thought, how does my kid know a little bit of my world like that? So that was always pretty fun. Uh, but anyway, I just noticed that evolution from when we were kids, they tried to explain everything to us. And now maybe maybe the expectation is there as a reader of G.I. Joe that you probably already know these things or they expect you just to right click and look it up. Really yeah. Quick. And we've got we've got the tools where we can look these things yeah. up more more easily right. than than we could as children right. when when the you know the internet didn't exist. Right. So, the, I mean, getting into the action part of the story, though, there's a few hostages and they send in Lieutenant Falcon to uh, to kind of save the day and make the rescue. I got a very Chuck Norris, like prisoners of war kind of <laughs> I was it, it immediately put me in that. Do you guys remember those? I think there was two or three of them where Chuck Norris would go into a, a Vietnam POW camp and single handedly rescue people. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, immediately where my mind went with that. I was like, oh, hell, we're sending Lieutenant Falcon on a Chuck Norris mission. So, uh, so that was pretty fun and exciting. Um, I thought the only thing that was a little too convenient was, you know, the problem was if you came in from the West, they had mortars set up and they could decimate any, any type of frontal assault. And if you came in from the East, there was this impenetrable swamp and that's your big problem. And you're like, okay, well, how are you going to solve that? I thought it was a little convenient that Lieutenant Falcon just rode an ATV through the swamp and <laughs> used, uh, you know, used a couple tools to help him get through there. Maybe a winch and like some other stuff that he mentioned. I mm-hmm. just thought that was a little bit too convenient of a solution. So that's that's the only thing you guys have heard me say negative about the comic. It set up this, you know, impenetrable fortress, and then he penetrated that thing pretty easily. <laughs> um, you know, the fact that the fact that they waited for the helicopter to get directly over them before they pulled out the surface to air stinger missile was maybe a little ill-advised as well, (laughs) but I guess it's good for dramatic purposes. And also just so Falcon can have that cocky look when he says like, grab the long box in the back. This is exactly what I wanted to happen was that the helicopter would get directly overhead before we bother shooting it. Um, So those are are probably the two Maybe maybe that's the trade-off because then the next page he gets shot. Maybe maybe Hama is uh, Hama's wagging his finger at this character a little bit. Don't get cocky, Falcon. Yeah, if you <laughs> would have shot the helicopter down further away, those troops on the ground would not have been able to get to you so easily, right? So you've you got a good point there, Tim. If he didn't make that strategic decision to wait until it was directly overhead, he could have prevented the hand-to-hand combat that they had to go through right after that. So I also people got shot. I also think some of some of the sort of impenetrable swamp is uh, there, there's, the, there's a little bit of a superhero element to GI Joe where mm-hmm. um, is it, uh, uh, is, is it the Russ Heath issue where help me out where storm shadow is put in jail. It's in the twenties. Right. And it's like mm-hmm. the jail cell has no seams and mm-hmm. storm shadow just gets out. And you're like, how did he do that? It's like, no, he did that because Larry Hama is the writer and he's a ninja <laughs> and Storm Shadow's a ninja and we're all like eight years old and like ninjas are freaking amazing. And like, if yeah. you like stuck a microphone in the writer's face and said, no, explain how he did that. He's like, I'm not revealing the magic trick to you. It's a story. It's magic. Like he's a freaking right. ninja. So I think some of this is 
Hama, the writer, like winking at us, right? It's like, because right. we've seen this before. Like the bad guys are like, well, they're not going to come from the front and the rear is impenetrable. It's like, oh, wait, I think I know where they're going to come from. They're going <laughs> yeah. to come yeah. from they're... where it's impenetrable. Like, no, Green Berets are that much uh, of, of badasses. Um, right. And also, uh, I don't, uh, I do, I do, I do wonder if this is, one of these very small contractions where it's a 20 page story and not a 22 page story. And um, I imagine as a single per as an individual without a teammate, like doing the winching around a tree and then like going back to the ATV and pulling yourself forward and then like doing it again at the next tree and then again to the next mm -hmm. tree, that's actually really tiring and difficult. And yep. it's, it seems easy because it's like, well, he's got a vehicle. Um, he's got a swamp vehicle. Um, but I wonder in a slightly longer version of this story or a, a version of the story with uh, maybe without the like the, the three page um, framing at the beginning, if we mm -hmm. might have seen a little bit more of Falcon's the effort. But yeah, the, the, more, struggle. the more the struggle, the, the more of that that we see, the less of sort of the like surprise and magic and superhero. It's like, how did he do it? He's a freaking yeah. Green Beret. Right. They, right. And I and I did like the commentary coming from Law and uh, Fast Draw where they were talking about how only a Green Beret could have pulled that off. Correction, only a badass Green Beret, you know. It was, <laughs> it was definitely enjoyable. I mean, I'm not going to lie, man. It, I got chills at multiple points in the comic. Uh, one of it was uh, when they asked basically, like, where's the rest of the rescue team? Uh, it's nice. Lieutenant Falcon's glorious line of the book. I absolutely got chills. Oh, this, uh, this, at, Carson, uh, Carson is jumping ahead to a uh, uh, favorite yes. line of the issue. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's it. And you guys probably knew I was going to say that, right? You know, uh, where's the rest of your rescue team? I'm Lieutenant Falcon and there's nobody else but me. <laughs> like, yes. And, and that he's, and the way he's for people listening and not watching this podcast, the way that he's yep. saying it, they're all running. He's in the lead, and he's yep. saying it with a very cool and calm face. Yep. Uh, he might be bragging, but he's also saying it matter of factly. Yeah, there is, <laughs> there is it, like he he knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he knows he's a badass. He knows That's... it's his issue. He knows he's on the cover. <laughs> he knows it's, his, it's his spotlight, and they're supporting cast, right? So uh, yeah. I do have to say, Order stole some of the show, though. It was pretty awesome to see uh, to see Order in there. Yeah, and there's I, some great it, Order bits. What what a great way to introduce you know these three characters to the GI Joe universe. Um, it's amazing that here we are, 288 issues later, and we're still getting these awesome origin stories for different characters that just haven't been given their moment in the spotlight like that. So that's the benefit of a universe where you've got literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of characters I, I think from 1982 to 1994 they released 482 figures maybe obviously some of those were multiple versions of the same character but not a lot of them and so man there's just a treasure trove of characters to pull from for this franchise and uh, a lot of characters that deserve more time in the sun so it's awesome to see it happening this is why i'm always rooting for the book to be by by weekly <laughs> Mm -hmm. Like yeah. no, I know it's very hard on the talent, but I would pay right. twice as often to get twice as many issues. Absolutely, man. And I and, and you know, look how many new characters they're introducing over the last decade. Uh, Don Moreno and Helix are going to be the the spotlight next month, right? And those two characters have come about in the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just there's so many different characters to cover here with this property, and you really can't give them all their due. So yeah, Tim, I, I support the bi-weekly thing. I don't know if Larry's up to it. 
<laughs> I, I think I think as much Larry, it's 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 the team, like an yeah. editor, an editor mm -hmm. wrangling that, a letterer and a color artist. Whether whether you get the regular people to do it twice as often, or you pull in additional people and keep the regular mm -hmm. people at their regular schedule, like you know, you see uh, five ten years ago when DC Comics was doing it with Batman series like Batman Eternal or with uh, 52 or Countdown, it is, even for a big company with a lot of money and talent to throw around and move around, uh, mm -hmm. like eventually every book just like has scheduling problems. Sure, yeah. Um, and I mean, let's be honest, G.I. Joe has uh, had a couple publishing dates pushed back um, recently. So we don't, we don't know if it's already a challenge just doing the monthly. Um, you know, I just more than anything with all the talk lately of will IDW have it throughout 22 or is maybe another publisher going to be able to wrangle away the rights. I just want Larry to, to keep doing it as long as Larry wants to do it. And just from a milestone perspective, I want to see him hit 300, even though he's he's written way more than 300 G.I. Joe comics if you count special missions. Um, I just want to see him hit that milestone. Like what other creator in our generation, you know, Chris Claremont didn't do that many issues of the X-Men, right? Um, Marv Wolfman didn't do that many of Teen Titans. Like what else, what else compares to Larry doing 300 issues of GI Joe? Yeah. There are things that like those, you know, uh, Sergio Aragonius on Gru, uh, Stan Sakai on mm -hmm. Usagi Ojimbo, uh, but, you know, like even, uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby on Fantastic Four or Thor top out, you know, at a hundred issues or so. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's unfathomable, and I don't think we'll see it again just based on how the comic industry is going and how often people move around property to property and how they're now going from industry to industry. A lot of them go into video games or TV or whatever. Um, so I just I think Larry's kind of that generational talent. I, I really want to see him hit that milestone. So, Carson, um, Mark, you might have your own wrap-up uh, thought or question, but I'll, I'll, I'll lob you one. Um, now that you have gotten your uh, your very excellent Falcon cover, I should say covers because it's two on this issue and spotlight issue, um, what what is left for you and Falcon in, in the toys, in the in the comics, yeah. in in me, in media? I oh Tim, I, I don't know. I honestly, <laughs> I never, <laughs> ever, ever in a million years would have ever imagined this whole scenario playing out. Like truth is stranger than fiction. Life is crazy. I think when I when I posted this, that was my lead in. Life is crazy. You just don't know what's going to happen. Um, all I can do is just like continue trying to put good energy out there, be positive and optimistic about the brand because I love it, um, and put hard work into 3D Joes and and the other kind of complementary products and. You never know what's going to come out of it, man. And this was just one thing. If I hadn't done that book series, John Royal wouldn't have reached out to me to trade for them. And he wouldn't have done the commission and he wouldn't have done this cover. And so you just never know what's going to come back. You, you put out good energy and hard work and you, you hope that something good comes back in return. And this was something amazing, you know. Wonderful. Uh, good, good, uh, good idea to, to end it on. Uh, but before we wrap up, just... Um, you know, to, to give you an opportunity to to give a shout out to, to anything else that, that you wanted to, uh, you know, promote, point out, uh, uh, what, sure. whatever. To, so I know you've got some uh, some pretty cool projects being lined up for 2022 as well. So <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The the long overdue one is the books, right? The Collecting the Art of G.I. Joe series sold out a couple of years ago. 
And I get asked about it at least on a weekly basis. And so what we're working on is an omnibus hardcover that will recollect all six of those volumes. But 1982 to 1986 has been completely redone. We've reshot everything. We've rescanned every box. We've done all the Photoshop editing again because it wasn't to the level of quality that Chad Huckle and I were happy with. Um, I've gone around the country interviewing the old creators. We filmed 40 hours of interviews that I'm going to use as material, uh, as research fodder for that omnibus hardcover. So it'll be more chocked full of research. Um, I've been gathering uh, unadorned art archive. I've been able to purchase some paintings and Kodachromes and that kind of stuff. So I'm sure we'll see those. So all that will be included in the omnibus hardcover. Um, I should be kickstarting that within the next month. Uh, I just moved though. And so that kind of has thrown a monkey wrench in my timing, but I'm working on brand development uh, for that book with Ed Morrill's son, Sean Morrill. A lot of people don't know who Ed Morrill is, but he worked on GI Joe from 69 to 89. And so I'm refining that before I get ready to kind of go to Kickstarter and do the pitch. I'm working with the Morrills to make sure that this book looks as good as it possibly can. Um, and then the next thing I've worked with all the creators while we did those 40 hours worth of interviews over the last year and a half, we actually made an all new action figure from start to finish from sketches to presentation art, to package art, to sculpted figure, to 3d design and printed accessories to a hand sculpted carrier pigeon by Bill Merkline. <laughs> it's, he's a uh, spoiler alert. He's a radio teletype operator. And I actually submitted this concept to Hasbro in 1989. And so here we are 30 years later and we've brought it to life. So that'll be coming out. And Mark, you already alluded to that. Uh, we're, call we're calling that Operation Recall because in the military, the military can recall old veterans to back to service in times of great need. And so basically the pitch is, you know, in this era of action figure stagnation, I've recalled the veterans to design all new action figure concepts. So you guys will be hearing a lot more about that, hopefully very soon. Very cool. I look uh, forward to it, as I'm sure uh, many, many people across uh, <laughs> across the fandom are. So, uh, uh, yeah, look look forward to finding out um, uh, everything that will be involved in in that. And um, yeah, it feels like there's a, a massive appetite for it. Um, you know, yeah. even Hasbro, even even Hasbro have uh, realised the uh, uh, realised uh, you know what what the fans want and a kind of sort of sort slightly uh, slightly sort of changing direction on their retro line and, uh, and, and sort of heading more towards you know, the uh, recall recall direction. I'm eager to see it. I'm very eager to see uh, what they do with the O-ring stuff. It's, it's amazing because, you know, we've been asking for it for years. And I remember at the conventions, you know, probably five, seven years ago, talking to, you know, Vice President of the Boys Toys, Daryl DePriest about it. And, you know, we just got constant pushback, like it's impossible. O-rings will never come back. We've thrown away all the molds. The hardware is too expensive. It's just not going to happen, like any number of excuses. And here we are, 2022, the 40th <laughs> anniversary of G.I. Joe, a real American hero, and O-rings are coming back. I could not be happier about it. I'm thrilled that Hasbro's doing it. I hope they create some all-new original designs. I hope it's not just recreating what we got in the 80s i, I hope that they do bring some, I, i'm sure they're going to do a lot of that like they've already shown with the snake eyes and storm shadow two packs but i hope they also throw in the mix some new designs and if they don't we will with operation recall so how about that pitch <laughs> there we go <laughs> excellent cool so um i think uh, you've got a long drive ahead of you uh, carson I so i won't hold you up any any longer uh but right. uh, yeah thanks for joining us today it was um great uh, to have you have you know full stop 
have you on just uh, talk talk to you, but also specifically, um, you know, get some of those those stories about how uh, you know how how your involvement uh, with that the the cover, how that all came about. So that was uh, some some great uh, great stories. Awesome! So, um, it was yeah, a it was a again. surreal it was a surreal experience, and I really appreciate you guys uh, for having me on. I enjoyed the company, Mark and Tim. So you guys, anytime if you want me to come back on, just let me know. Sounds good. Yes, for sure. Let's uh, let's not leave it so long. <laughs> uh, and we, uh, uh, Carson, I look forward to as as public health in America in 2022 hopefully gets better. I look forward to mm-hmm. seeing you in person at a convention. Dude, I love it. Look forward to it, Tim. Can't wait to see your book updates too, man. I know you've been working in the background. I'm excited to see what you've been cooking up. Thanks. Yep. Talk to you guys soon. Bye, cool. Carson. Cool. That was great having uh, Carson on. Uh, sort of being meaning to to have it you know try and get him involved and have him on a on a show for a long long time so i feel it was much overdue so uh great great to have him on before we get you know continue talking about this issue yes fans uh visit carson metaxas at 3djoes.com but before you do that listen to mark and i talk about issue 288 uh cool um just as a side sorry tim um how long have you um known carson have you met you've met him a a few times in person right yeah um always at joe con uh i think the first one might have been the one in texas and i'm blanking on the year but uh about 10 years ago sounds right because he was selling the posters for 3d joe's Uh, and if you haven't seen these listeners uh there are a couple of them they're, I think, 18 by 24, standard poster size. They're all white and then laid out in a, in a, in a grid, not with an actual grid, but laid out in rows and columns are photos of every figure fully geared up. Uh, and there's one poster for, I think it's like 82 to 85, every figure, and then another poster for like 86 to 89. And at the time, he was selling two versions, uh, ones with just the images and then ones with the images and I think uh, everyone's name in black type under them. And uh, Larry Hama uh, at one point or another in the last several years has had one of them up in his office. Uh, Excellent. So I think certainly- Very useful. I think at one of those early conventions, Carson walked up to Hama and was like, hey, your comic's awesome, you're great would you take this poster? And Hama's like, sure. And then Hama's like, well, you know, I like go to yojo.com and probably at the time people weren't going much yet to 3djoes.com. But, you know, Hama Hama has talked about, I think he said this out loud or he, he may have said this in a letters page uh, in the comic in the last two years, but it, it's sort of easier for him to write about a character or he might think, he might be more likely to think of putting a character into an issue of G.I. Joe if there's a figure of them in front of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or maybe by extension, if there is a poster with a bunch of figures uh, uh, in front of them, in front of him. Yeah, uh, I rem- uh, yeah I remember hearing or reading that for yeah definitely in the um, in the letters page. Yeah. Uh, okay, so yes, we are talking about issue two eight eight. Uh, if you haven't yet realized, you're not paying attention. Uh, it was released on 8th of December, 2021. And the creative team were writer Larry Hammer, as always, artist Cuba Ball, uh, colors Jay Brown, letters Neil Yutaki, senior editor Tom Waltz, 
editor Megan Brown and research specialist Diana Davis. Um, and they've got a little blurb in the front this this for, for this issue, which is uh, interesting. It says, from loyally serving his... Actually, Tim, why don't you read it? You'll, you'll give, give uh, a uh, break sure. for me. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> from loyally serving his country in the special forces to protecting the world as an elite G.I. Joe warrior, he's seen his fair share of triumphs and tragedies. And now, with a new, unknown threat on the horizon, his chaotic past will clash headlong with his precarious present as he prepares to help his fellow Joes stave off Cobra's latest attempt at global terror. His name is Vincent R. Falcone, and this is Spotlight Lieutenant Falcon. <laughs> Thank you, Admiral Akbar. Uh, <laughs> I'm sort of doing my Jackson back. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that sort of blur for the sit rep um, sounds like it might have been written before they saw the script. <laughs> the sort of chaotic, uh, chaotic past clashing with his uh, precarious presence, uh, unless it's foreshadowing something to to come. But uh, yeah, interesting. Let's look at the covers, uh, shall we? Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. So uh, cover A is another section of the Freddie Williams II. Uh, it's not a triptych. It's a quit quintic. Um, the five-part connecting cover where we've got a Joe battle with Cobra at the Statue of Liberty. And this one has... Don Marino as Snake Eyes jump kicking a Crimson Guardsman uh, with Stalker on a jetpack in the background and uh, a, a bat getting shot in the face in the foreground. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't have, if you've listened to previous episodes, you know how I feel about uh, this particular Freddie Williams, the second five part connecting uh, cover. So I'll, I'll just say uh, repeat. Um, I, I will say, um, uh, Freddie Williams, the second is drawing, not just covers, but interiors for a Godzilla, is it Godzilla power Rangers crossover. It's in the new issue of previews, right? So it's, uh, stuff that your comic book store can order, uh, that'll come out in, I think March. Uh, and it's a mini series published, I think by boom. I think by boom, but it might be technically in association with IDW because IDW has the Godzilla comics license. And um, I, uh, I got to say, uh, Freddie Williams II um, has done lots of really neat 1980s um, properties uh, in comics. You know, he did the three Batman Ninja Turtles crossovers uh, that DC published with IDW. And he did uh, the... Uh, he-Man Thundercats crossover. Do I have that right? And uh, I'm a little jealous because he's only done covers for GI Joe, right? And he he did he did some covers for um, uh, a previous GI Joe series at IDW, the other continuity. And I yeah. think he did did he do some Revolution covers that involved some Transformers. But I, I keep right. uh, I keep hoping that in addition. It's, it's all these other brands where he's doing covers and interiors. And I would really love him to do covers and an issue uh, of G.I. Joe. Uh, cover B is um, drawn by uh, Kuber Bayal um, and colored by uh, his wife. Shimmerispo. Thank you. 
Thank you. Um, and uh, in our previous episode about this issue, um, I spotted uh, a second signature on the cover, but um, they all revealed to us that he had sort of forgot to tell editorial. <laughs> when he turned in the image, he'd sort of forgotten to tell editorial that he, he drew it and someone else colored it. And so the credit on the inside front cover of this issue just says art by him and doesn't designate anyone as, as the color artist. And then uh, retailer incentive cover uh, is penciled by John Royal and inked by Jagish Kumar and colored by James O'Frady. And um, uh, separate from the fact that it is a drawing of a photo of a nice guy who's a good G.I. Joe fan and person and steward, uh, it's also just a very fun and exciting cover it's uh, there's a lot of action because Falcon's running and there are guns going off and explosions behind him. Um, there's a there's a foreground element at the very top of the cover, which is this cobra, you know, printed the printed comic with the logo. I thought it was a cobra flag, but um, seeing it without the GI Joe logo, it looks uh, maybe more like it's uh, like at the bottom of like the side of a hiss tank or a panel on a doorway that has the Cobra logo on it. Um, but in either case, uh, it's a nice, it's a nice element that adds some depth to the cover. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the detail of which is mostly lost on the printed cover because it's behind the logo. So yes, you can't see a huge amount of the edges of it. Can you? Um, similarly in the Virgin version without the logo, the moon is a big part of the cover and is really striking because there are two missiles in front of it and it's the furthest thing in the distance. Uh, the version printed with the logo, uh, you sort of lose the moon. And I wouldn't say that the cover then becomes too busy because there's actually, in terms of objects, not a lot happening in the background, but there is a lot of color happening in the background. and. Um, I don't know how to. I don't know quite how to explain walking this uh, fine line, but there are there are color artists who. It's like I'm looking at this cover, and in the bottom right where the signatures are, it's like aqua and gray aqua, and then above it there's yellow behind the explosions, and then above it is orange, which becomes purple, and then going counterclockwise uh, past the moon, there's a deeper purple, and then below that there's a a gray violet and then below that behind covergirl's uh weapon is more of a neutral gray and then below that behind the fire is sort of a gray peach orange and then the like the, the rocks that covergirl is, is propped up on are sort of a warm uh girder or rock which then becomes a cool girder or rock because it becomes aqua again as we loop back to where we started and um there are color artists who uh, maybe it's the art that it that the colors get put under, or maybe it's the very specific choices. I feel like there are color artists who, with this arrangement and this number of colors, it would be ugly, unappealing, or too busy. And it, I don't quite know how to say it, but something about this, it's not. It's I find it really exciting and 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 quite pretty. It's not mm. it's not too much. Um, as a contrast, the colors on cover B, where uh, Falcon is standing calmly looking to the right um, are muted and uh, and I, I don't say this as an insult uh, dirty right and I think that comes from like an ink wash uh, treatment at the at the inking stage or no I, I guess it's I guess it's just the application of color right a, a, a digital brush that that mimics like watercolor 
I, I do think in terms of selling a comic book to people at a store, I do think uh, John Royal's cover, cover R.I., is the winner. And I'm always a little sad when sort of the most exciting cover of the three for a month of G.I. Joe comics is the one that is rarest and hardest to find because I want mm. this comic to do everything it can do to get people to buy the book. And uh, no, no offense to Cooper Bale's very calm, cool, steely focused cover uh, B with Falcon in that helicopter. Um, but, um, you know, if, if G.I. Joe is an action comic, cover R.I. is is the cover that has the most action and then compared to cover A with snake eyes on it is the one that most represents the issue. So if there's if there's something in IDW's calculus about, well, you know, John Royal draws in a very like hot you know, like Jim Lee, J. Scott Campbell style. And if we make that the uh, the aspirational cover, people will order more copies to get it. Uh, and then in total, we sell more copies. You know, if, if that's what is best for the book, then I accept that. But sort of at face value, uh, I, I do wish that uh, the, the cover of Falcon Running was just sort of the common cover A. Yeah. I just had a thought about sort of your, just your note around the, the colors and there is a lot of going on with the colors that but it still still works and i think it might partly be down to kind of uh john royal's quite open style but that uh, you know but that has very clear delineation of uh quality of the line so so there's very um there's a difference between the the, the thickness of the line that he's he's using on the on the drawing and, and it sort of really makes the shapes stand out and, and stand stand apart so that um you know it's not getting i guess overcomplicated by 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 the colors because because of that aspect i think helps helps it if if there was a lot if the if the art was a lot busier with it with the the line work and the the cross hatching and the details and also didn't have i guess the that difference in in how the line is treated I, I could see I could see that this getting a bit busier and harder on the eye. Yeah, um, maybe a comparison is John Royal's cover from several issues ago of Law fighting the Desert Scorpions, where mm -hmm. there was a lot happening in the background, and here, like yes, there are two helicopters and two explosions, but effectively there's no background. It's not like Falcon and Carver Girl are in front of a fortress and a gun emplacement and the woods, right? It's the, everything behind them is basically negative space. And so um, James O'Frady can go a little nuts with, with these gradients, which, you know, on paper I, I wouldn't like, but I, I think are uh, quite nice here. I think this cover would also work if James O'Frady had picked, you know, two or three colors for the background instead of eight or nine. Um, but this cover does have some, Good point. some latitude. Um, how does the issue overall, Mark, work for you? Yeah, good. It's a, it's a, um, I think it's a very good issue. Works well. Shall I get into the plot breakdown? Oh yeah. Um, as a reminder of exactly what happens. So, fifteen years ago, Vincent Falcone is visiting the J JFK Special Warfare Museum and is advised by the sergeant giving the tour 
he wants to serve, he should go to college and enter the ROTC. That kid would go on to be a Green Beret, ROTC commissioned, special forces trained, top of the class at Benning Jump School and Ranger School. And seven years later, at Bolivia, Wolf Land border, three soldiers, Brown, aka Fast Draw, Levine, aka Law, and Barkdale, aka Shallow Grave, have been held captive at an impenetrable fortified village. A general and his unknown suited spook send in a green beret to rescue them. The prisoners and their dog are made to di- dig their own graves in the woods. Actually, the dog doesn't dig. So, anyway. Barkdale is shot in the back of the head before Falcon comes to the rescue to make an escape in the, uh, through the swamp in an ATV. Meanwhile, the militia make chase in their hind helicopter, which Farstraw is able to take down with a Stinger missile. A firefight ensues with Law's dog order making the final save. They make their escape along with the captured militia colonel. The general and the spook are offered to recruit all three into a covert action team codenamed G.I. Joe. So the immediate thing that struck me um, was uh, it was instantly trying to recognise where we were and who those mysterious figures were in the those those early pages the the general and the spook and um just looking from the preview page i was like that that spook guy looks very uh familiar uh uh, because of that sort of distinctive kind of you know hairstyle that he he's got and i was uh right it's it was the uh the characters that that featured um in issue 60 cross purposes which was the uh todd mcfarlane issue um, so, so this is this um, is set immediately at some point before uh, the events of that uh, issue sixty. That was the the issue that introduced um, originally Falcon, Law and Order, uh, Farstraw, and uh, also Chuckles, uh, who's not in in this issue. So it's um yeah interesting that this is called a spotlight, but in some respect it feels more like an untold tale in 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 terms of it. It is a, uh, a tale from the history of G.I. Joe, an origin that we didn't know that we wanted, but uh, have been given. And it, and it definitely uh, is uh, is welcome. So, yeah, giving us an unexpected backstory of Falcon and to some extent Fast Draw and, and Law and Order as as well. The, the thing that struck me most is, I guess, the simplicity of the story. Sometimes we talk about how we you know, go from scene to scene and, and sort of the, the amount of things that are being juggled and, and it felt much more simple and, uh, and linear. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that's, you know, poss- possibly refreshing to, to some degree in terms of, um, the, the type of story that, that we get that it was very, very easy, um, uh, to, to, to follow. Um, uh, and yeah, I, th- I think, um, pretty much all the aspects around it, um, seemed pretty um, spot on to me good writing uh good good art and um uh we spoke in, in depth to to cuba ball about his uh his process and um hearing it from from him direct direct it was it was clear you know how seriously he took this as an assignment and that he really wanted to um you know honor the the fandom by put, putting in a well thought out and and um job that that's yeah definitely had a lot of consideration as to how everything works hangs together that that there's there's thought behind the way that things look and and flow um and and that's seen on on the 
on the page. So, Tim, very long ramble from from me, but I think those are my high level thoughts. No, that's all great. Thank you. Um, so, just to remind me, not even everyone else. So, the guy who I'm going to call Red Tie because he's wearing a red tie, mm-hmm. the guy with glasses who's got the particular hair and a jacket, the spook, the guy with the red tie, he is in issue 60, correct? Yes, but correct. the older, uh, the other guy that he's talking to, the older guy who is in fatigues and puts on his helmet and says, we don't talk about that out loud. We have not seen him before. He's new for this issue. I think we could um, insinuate that it's pr- these two are probably the spook and the general that feature in issue 60. So okay. I, I, I would um, I would think right. it would be a reasonable conclusion to say that, that these two are the two same baddies. Okay, because I, uh, I, I saw on the Talking Joe Facebook page, I saw you or someone, sorry, someone, if it's not you, post, <laughs> a, it post, <laughs> post a panel from issue 60 of Red Tie, but I don't remember if the older guy in fatigue was, was also... Uh, uh, shown in that panel, yeah. Um, the the, uh, the the general character I think is is less kind of obviously a bit got a bit more of a generic look to him, and and here he's in fatigues, whereas I th- think in the other okay. issues he's more in a uniform. So it's it's okay. a less obvious like for like, whereas you know the other character it's it's a more obvious a more obvious sort of uh, um, uh, line to draw. So um, my uh, and listeners, you might have figured this out from uh, our interview with Cooper Bayal or the last hour with uh, Carson. Um, I love this issue. I think this issue is great. And I think it's working on many in, in many categories. Um, so Mark just said that it maybe felt more like an untold tale than a spotlight. And I'm fine with those getting interchanged or us having a flashback issue or a spotlight issue that is not designated as such. Um, You know, that certainly happened in the original Marvel run, you know, like issues 26 and 27 or issue 84, where someone just tells someone else like their origin without it being framed with a flashback or without the title or the cover or the solicitation in a catalog saying like flashback. Uh, This is neither good nor bad, just in terms of of a narrative device. I was... A little surprised that the the three pages at the beginning that we don't come back to that at the end and i don't think we need to but i sort of thought uh like i sort of thought that if we started with young falcon we might end with young falcon narratively that doesn't actually work because narratively we need to end with like the joes these three guys deciding to join the team uh, but in, in terms of my expectations, um, you know, similarly, a couple issues ago, uh, Stalker and Scarlet are talking about Stalker's time in Vietnam. And, you know, the first two or three pages are Scarlet saying, Stalker, tell me about uh, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow back in Vietnam. And then at the end, you know, it sort of wraps up with them back in the present day. Um, anyway, um, what I'm really struck by uh, we've already well covered uh, with Carson um, Falcon's badassery. Uh, I like the stakes of the issue that these Joes might die. Or they're not Joes yet, but these Joes might die. And and it goes as far as them digging their own graves. And the panel where uh, you know, the bad guy says, that's deep enough. And you see the two of them who are still alive 
kneeling in front of their own graves uh, and Fastraw's head is bowed and their hands are both in front of them. Um, and then the next panel, a bad guy, the same bad guy has a gun pointed to the back of their heads. Uh, this is this is a little upsetting for me as a reader. It's a little chilling. Like, I don't think they're going to die in this scene or the next scene, but it gets pretty close and I'm worried. And so, you know, the, the tension is like, oh man, how are they going to get out of this? And then two panels later, when we see Falcon creeping up in the background and then that um, almost silent panel, wordless panel on the bottom um, and Falcon's badassery begins, uh, it's, it's really... Uh, it's really exciting. Um, what I'm struck by most in this issue, actually, the, the thing that sticks out the most is how precise and sterling and excellent Kubra Bayal's art is. And I think, I think it's so good. He's actually doing some things that we maybe, maybe don't notice because we are used to a level of um, quality and um, consistency in G.I. Joe comics that um, I think what this is doing really, really, really well sort of subtly rises above uh, a lot of comic art that we see. So here are a couple examples. And, and Bale referred to this first one when we interviewed him. He worked really hard to make everyone look different in this issue. Now, I'm totally fine with an artist having a stock face for men and women or like five or six stock faces. You know, like if you draw a Batman comic, you are going to draw Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne differently than Alfred, right? Alfred's going to be older maybe his face is uh, narrower. And if you draw Commissioner Gordon, you probably do draw a slightly different face and then you add a mustache. But in the you know, the deadline challenges of drawing comics, if you draw just sort of the same face on Bruce Wayne and on Commissioner Gordon. And the color artist gives Gordon like white hair and a white mustache. It's like, we understand they're different people, right? Um, what Bayal does here is he gives very specifically every single character in this issue a distinct face. Eyes, nose, cheekbones, eyebrows. It's it's most apparent on Fastdraw. Fastdraw has big, thick eyebrows, but you know, look at the panel, uh, look at page uh, eight. It's uh, it's the panel where it's the three Joes, there's no background, there's just white behind them and Law is whispering, every minute we're still alive, there's hope, don't give up, right? It's really clear here because they're in profile. Uh, I mean, Law's not technically in profile, but close enough. But Fastdraw has a different nose than the other two guys. And like artists don't actually need to put this much work into comics. It's great when they do, and it does make for a more enriching reading experience. And maybe a bunch of the readers don't even notice that they like it more, or they like it more and they don't know why. But I will tell you why I like this more. All these characters look very different from each other. I was going to say, just on Laura as well, you can see how he's picked up on that that sort of that that toy toyetic kind of look to in his in his hair well not not it's not toyetic rather they picked up on the cues in the toy where he's kind of his hair is sort of slightly more flat to to his head and kind of I guess from you know the the parting how you know how it works on the toy and stuff like that and it's just subtly you know not not sort of like for like just you know recreating the toy but picking up some of the the cues of of how it's um yeah how it's shown on the, on the on the toy and how it's very different to you know 
another another figure with another hairstyle. Yeah. Um, the second thing that I love about the artwork here is uh, Kubra Bayal's uh, body language. He does really gorgeous, subtle things with posing. So everyone flip to page one, right? Panel two, um, that girl all the way on the left in the purple, like that's actually how a kid who's bored at on a school field <laughs> trip uh, might be standing. And like, if she had both of her feet planted on the ground, that would also be fine. But Bayal goes the extra mile here. And I don't know if Larry Hama's plot calls for one of the kids to have headphones on. And I don't exactly know if the kid listening to headphones, I'm assuming that's not the, when you go to museums, you can often get an audio recording. Uh, and so you can walk around the exhibit and uh, like someone is like, narrating for you to go to certain um, photos or, or, or vitrines or paintings. And I don't know if this is that, probably not, or like a bored kid is listening to music because they don't want to be on the field trip. So if that's in the plot, good job, person who wrote the plot. And then the kid on the far right who's got the glasses, who looks, you know, a little bored, a little um, neutral, and yet as a contrast, right? Like Kid Falcon is looking up in uh, awe and delight. Um, and then I wanted to point out one more example of uh, really great body language. Uh, and I might slip and point out two more examples. Because um, <laughs> every single page, right? Because I could actually do this in uh, almost every panel and every page. Um, everyone flip to the last page of the comic. This big pan panel two, the big panel. Um, every, and this happens in, in, this happens in almost every, yeah. So. Everyone on this panel, in this panel, it has a different pose. So Red Tie has his hands in his pockets, and the uh, general has his arms akimbo, and Law is leaning forward, and he's got one hand over the other. Fastraw has his arms folded, and then, oh, sorry, Falcon has his uh, arms folded, and then Fastraw uh, has one leg up, which makes perfect sense. One hand is up on his thigh and the other hand is hanging. Um, and notice even what he's doing with his right foot. He's he's pressing it up a little bit off the ball of his foot. So his his heels off the ground, right? And then on the in the final panel, right? Like all three of them are, it's it's the acting, the body language is so good. And I, you know, I haven't even described one of my favorite words storytelling, right? Like all the drama, all the sort of neutral scenes where someone's just talking to someone and then the action. It is all like, here's my minimum, clear uh, and legible in the issue, but it's actually all great. Um, and uh, my favorite example is that page where um, Falcon, uh, Falcon has revealed himself right after he takes out the guy with the knife. You turn the page, Falcon throws his knife, uh, uh, a shot hits the top of his backpack, and then in the big final panel, uh, he pulls out a shotgun and takes out the bad guy who is screaming and also dropping his pistol, and also Law is lunging for it, and also Law is like sort of getting pushed uh, or out of the way or falling. And also fast falling, it's <laughs> jumping out of the way. And also there's a very slight, um, there's a rhythm to this page and there's a really gorgeous rhythm to this panel where because Law um, 
if you squint, he becomes an arc. He 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 comes the shape of a crescent moon, right? He's like a he's like a um, a parenthesis. Um, you make an arc from his bottom foot all the way up along his arm, and then to where he's re reaching for the gun, and then the negative space behind him of the tree sort of obliges that. Um, and so um, this bottom panel has this really nice sense of foreground, middle ground, background. But this bottom panel is like almost subtly curvilinear perspective. It's almost subtly like a rounded. Uh, three-point perspective. And then this dynamic thing that Bayal does with the top three panels where they are like italicized. They're not straight up and down 90 degree rectangles, right? They're like parallelograms. And um, and nothing, nothing covers anything else up. Nothing is like obstructed. You know, like in previous episodes, both in IDW issues and also in Devil's Do issues, I have said things like, oh, this person's like shoulders in the way of this other person or like, oh, I can't see the prop because it's drawn too small. So I didn't know that it was important. And then the next page when someone has this prop, I don't know where it came from. This page, like Bayal puts a ton of stuff in this. And this isn't just like, this isn't like, yes, it's probably five sentences in the plot. Like uh, Falcon throws knife, knife hits guy while other guy draws a bead on Falcon, shoots Falcon, Falcon shoots him back while uh, Law and Fast Draw like jump out of the way. But whether it was that or a little bit more, uh, Kuberbaugh makes so much of this page. The, the drawing in this issue is so, so good. And everyone who has drawn issues in the last year, you know, I've said things like, particularly when we, we've interviewed them, because it's true. And I really want this book to ship weekly. Like, give me four issues a week, uh, a month. Um, I would love everyone who's drawn issues to come back and do another issue or a run of issues. I think uh, Kuber by all, as hard as it was for him to draw this issue with a tough deadline and like his, uh, his like sleep, um, he was telling us that he has uh, like a, like a sleep, a sleep condition and it's, he's, he has insomnia. Yeah, um, hyperfocus. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm going to say one last thing, and I can do it in a sentence. And, uh, and on this, and also on this page that we're looking at as as well, it, it, that that you know, as well as the aspects you were talking about in terms of the way it looks, as well, that just that that thoughtfulness of designing all of these characters to be slightly different, including those uh, the the militia characters. It just means that you can completely tell what is is happening with that thoughtfulness of just differentiating these two characters slightly uh, differently. You know, one of them has got. Uh, a beard one of them has got a cap and a, and a red scarf that means that, that as you're following you know who's doing what you can easily differentiate it so you know um it, the on the on the following page to so the one we were just talking about when when there's the guy on the on the ground you know you can immediately see he's got knife in his in his in his neck he's got the same gun which is probably subtly different as well to the the other guy who's got a pistol uh, he's got a beard as well. So it's all of these different cues um, that uh, are sort of just building up subtly without, I'll say, probably even noticing um, to be able to, to decipher exactly who's who, where everybody is as well. Yeah. Um, I'll make these two last points very quickly because I was going on and on and on. Uh, number three, um, Kuber Bayal can differentiate between people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's okay in comics when, you know, like talented or hot comic artist draws everyone at this sort of like 
uber age of 29, you know, and then like you want to draw someone older. So you just add some lines to their face, which is actually actually not what anatomy does. But hey, um, but the spook and the general, uh, the, the, you know, the the this their their skin hangs differently because they are older. And, um, you know, I've talked about how like one of the things I like about a Herb Trimpey or a uh, uh, Mike Vosberg or a Larry Hama in those early 30 issues or so is that like Hawk is older than the other Joes. Um, and, you know, like I, I don't see that in the Devil's Due issues. I just see him have like a different hair color and like one extra line on his forehead or something. Um, but, uh, you know, the people in this issue are all different ages and um, it's it's just a lot of skill at drawing anatomy. And then point number four, about how great the art is in this issue. Um, Kuber Bayal often puts his camera low and slightly tips it up, which is uh, a trick in storyboarding for action film and action animation. And in fact, the G.I. Joe cartoon did it all the time in the 80s where you make characters a little bit more powerful if you put the camera a little bit low and you aim it up at them a little bit. So um, it can also emphasize things like who has power and who doesn't. So uh, the uh, the page where the Joes have gotten sort of shoved out of the storage container where they've been held prisoner, um, and uh, and uh, they're all sort of like leaning forward and Fastdraw saying uh, UNF exclamation mark off, and then one of the bad guys says Sergeant Drevik, take the prisoners out into the woods, shoot them and bury them. The camera here is at like three feet. And it's looking up a bit. This this happens over. Yeah, this uh, uh, take them brap, take them down, growl. A, a way to add a sense of power uh, and emphasis to your characters. And just think of superheroes. Think of like Superman or Batman, right? Or like Captain America. Like these aren't these people aren't like five ten like regular humans. They're like six three and they're extra muscular. So even if even if literally with a camera in live action or drawing it in animation, you can have the camera look at them straight on. What if you pull the camera down a few inches and tip it up at them a little bit, which mimics the experience of the rest of us regular people uh, seeing them. And so for action sequences or for making like a Joe character more heroic or a villain in this issue more menacing. And sometimes it's just about the dynamism of a page. It's not always about sort of physical power. This issue is really well drawn, and uh, and I would I would love Kubra Bayal to come back and, and to do another issue or a run of issues. He he is very good for GI Joe, and <laughs> and I will I will admit when I saw his name uh, in a catalog ahead of time and in the previous issue, I was like, who's this guy? That's not a name that I recognize. I don't know how I feel about a guy who hasn't drawn GI Joe before drawing GI Joe, and his cover for this issue, which was. I think previewed in the last page of the last issue. And certainly I saw it in some catalogs. It's a good drawing, but it, it didn't blow me away because it's mm. sort of too calm and all that negative space on the right either wants something else to happen or some copy, you know, like like what is what is the mystery of Falcons? <laughs> uh the mission that went uh that went wrong. Can Falcon rescue his so-and-so? Find out in spotlights the border of Barovia and Wolf Kiakakland. But <laughs> but having not been familiar with his work and having not been initially wowed by this cover, man, did he did he put in the time and effort to pull off a tremendous drawn comic book 
in the GIGS series. Very good. The one, I guess, misstep that that I had with the this issue, if I'm allowed to to move on to to yeah, that, yeah. was uh, probably in the that early sequence where um, Falcon is describing his um, his you know father um, and and that aspect around um, you know that that he's been um, uh, come into exposure with Agent Orange. Um, oh yeah, he says it was Agent Orange, but we can't get the DOD to admit that it took Vietnam twenty years, but it finally killed him. That aspect of um, his dad sort of being done wrong, essentially, um, um, sort of playing playing that against um, against um, young Falcon's kind of very strong ambition to to get into the army in in his footsteps just seems a little bit incongruous i don't know if you had any thoughts about that aspect um it did seem incongruous uh it didn't didn't throw me off so much that it it, it was okay for me yeah i mean it, it was it wasn't something that took me too far out of it or i, I couldn't i could not get past it, it just it it seemed like a slightly you know there there was a strange kind of um, you know dichotomy between those competing ideals of of right. my dad's you know I want to follow two, my dad's footsteps but he's been very badly mistreated by the the army right two panels later he the turn is 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 fast no made me want to be a green brave even more uh, maybe maybe a, a little more dialogue or a slightly longer version of this scene where mm. the, where the older, the older guy sort of gets to convince him a little bit more. Yeah. I see. I see your point about the, the turn being abrupt. You know, I go, I, I go back and forth because uh, the, the, the target age for GI Joe is a little bit of a, is a little bit of a, of a moving target actually. Um, you know, <laughs> and, the toy, yeah. the toys... Ball himself was like, what, what age rating is this? How much violence can I show? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we think of the Marvel run, the Marvel run was a comics code approved book. So blood wasn't red. It was Brown or, or like silhouetted as black. We didn't see exit wounds. So it's like, those were the rules of comics in the eighties. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we have seen here and there in the modern IDW continuation of the Marvel run, uh, someone just shoots someone. And this did happen in, in the Marvel run. I don't I don't want to, like, revise it as if it never happened. Um, I'm I'm I think because I've gotten sort of sensitive to like uh, as I've gotten older, I'm sort of thinking about, I don't know, like my 10 year old nephew and just sort of the politics of of G.I. Joe and the politics of that surround a toy that is about um, soldiers, you know, it's like, well, star Wars can get away with it. Like you can shoot stormtroopers a lot and you can chop off arms with your magic laser sword, but like, that's not okay. That's <laughs> not okay in GI Joe because it's like, no, but guns are real. It's like, well, I mean, actually these soldiers are keeping us safe. Whereas star Wars isn't real. Um, so um, I think I've gotten um, a little, 
aware or leery of uh, this kind of action content in a G.I. Joe comic as much as I want it because, you know, if no one ever dies or gets shot, there are no stakes. You know, it's like, I want Cobra Commander to be mean. I don't want him to be anemic. So uh, I'm, I'm really struck when in a, in a G.I. Joe comic, um, someone does just shoot, shoot someone. But, you know, it's a bad guy. And like, this is, this is based on you know, actual conflicts that have happened in Europe in the last couple of decades. So uh, it's it's not uh, it's not cheap. You know, and similarly, uh, a few pages later, when Falcon gets a knife in one of the bad guys, and then Fast Draw gets to um, hit someone else in the face with a with a <laughs> a shovel. It's like, no, that that I enjoy that feeling because this bad guy just made Fast Draw dig his own grave with that shovel. Mm-hmm. So you know, the Joe should should get some justice. So it, I was it, I was struck by the action content in the issue. I'm not saying it was bad or I found it upsetting. I was just struck by it. It yeah, it was it's striking the sort of the le- the level of um, guess violence. It's less less cartoony. It feels more uh, there's more real life kind of jeopardy to it in terms of you know that they're they're digging their own graves. Um, that uh, that's you know pretty uh, horrific concept. And uh, yeah, poor Barkdale gets gets shot in the back of the head and it feels like we guess see slightly more violence on panel than than is actually shown because we're you know our imaginations are, fi- are filling in some of uh, some of the gaps you know um on on the youtube video where we're showing the um, larry hammer's suggested panel for um the layout of of this so that but barkdale's headshots is is less graphic so you know storytelling uh assist so so that we're we're seeing the i guess storytelling behind that that concept rather than necessarily the the full full-on head exploding uh, and similarly the the cuba balls original pencils on that um falcon with the with this the knife to the throat was originally drawn you know being pulled across it with with the uh all of the blood on display whereas actually on the on the published page it, it's it's just showing the initial touching of the knife to the neck and not the uh, the ensuing gore. <laughs> that um, so so it's it's clever. It's you know clever storytelling in terms of how we're being shown these um, these levels so of violence. I'm trying to remember when IDW was publishing the the other continuity, the, the IDW continuity, right with Chuck Dixon's GI Joe and and the Chuckles book in Cobra, uh, and then GI Joe Origins. Um, am I remembering correctly? I'm, I'm not sitting near my issues. Did they have like very small on the back cover, like right under the barcode and the price? Did they say like recommended for ages 13 and up? Ooh, I, c- I couldn't remember that off the top of my head without, without I, looking. I, I do recall, and unless I'm recalling wrong, that halfway through this Larry Hama run that continues uh, A Real American Hero, there was a year or two where the Larry Hama book at, I don't know, issue like 190 or 210, for a little while, it did get that. It did say, like, suggested for readers 13 and up. And I remember being really irked at that because the book, the Larry Hama G.I. Joe book didn't seem any more, it didn't seem like vicious compared to the Marvel issues. I think uh, as as coloring in comics has gotten um, more realistic, uh, if if you draw if you like sort of are painting all of the 
colors of someone's complexion and their clothing and the sky, as opposed to like comics in the eighties, like light blue, medium blue, light green, you know, and like, and then the whole background is just going to be yellow. Um, I do think that modern coloring can add some intensity without sort of like trying to add intensity, just trying to add realism. Um, but, uh, but this also happens, uh, I think this also happened on the regular IDW Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles book, the one that's now up to about issue 125, where it's not the book that's based on the cartoon that's running or the previous book that was based on the previous cartoon that was running. It's the one that's aimed like this G.I. Joe comic, uh, more for older fans. Um, and, but I, I don't think that anything about this G.I. Joe book precludes it from being for, uh, if there was a G.I. Joe toy line right now, and this was this month's issue of G.I. Joe, like, I think G.I. Joe was always PG, PG-13, and this issue leans closer to PG-13, but it's like, don't forget, 1977 Star Wars, one guy chops another guy's arm off, and you <laughs> see the arm, and there's blood, right? And an entire planet gets obliterated. Now, it's all about, like, tone and how it's played, because there isn't, like, a shot on the planet of, like, 100 people screaming in agony yeah. as they're, like, incinerated. But it's like, um, you know, this moment where uh, uh, Falcon um, is taking his knife to this bad guy, and... Falcon's not saying anything and his eyes are in shadow, right? So it's, it's, it's a, I don't want to say vicious, but it is an intense moment. You know, he's, he's a little bit less of a person. He's a little bit more of a killing machine, but that's the mission. He's like supposed to take up this bad guy. So, um, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm always sort of like uh, cautious or anxious when the specter of GI Joe, like not being for kids or not being for everyone, um, like takes over because it's like, well, it is an action story and like kids do play soldier and, and these are good guys taking out bad guys, you know, like, anyway, I could just, I guess talk about how great the, the art yeah. is again. <laughs> and uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the striking things about, as we talk about the violence is, is the, the panel where, um, Law is quadruple tapping Sergeant Drevik to make sure that he stays down for the the counts, uh, which yeah, it's uh, sort of done in in a sort of silhouette to a degree. So we're not seeing the 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 full gore, but uh, it's still a very striking uh, panel. But um, also striking, and he's lying there with with the the knife still in his throat as well. But um, it's also striking from the the point is he he's. Um, quadruple tapping him but um, I think he needs to because uh, three of those uh, shots uh, are missing him well no two of the shots are missing him um, so I don't I, know if it if it qualifies as a quadruple tap if um, if only one of the bullets actually um, you know lands uh, I, I also had a little question on that panel when I got to that panel um, I'm going to point out uh, uh, a, a thing that I see and another thing that I see um you know who Kubert Bell's art actually reminds me of a little bit is uh, Igor Cordy. Okay. Uh, Igor Cordy is, I think, Croatian and in American comics is best known as the third artist on Grant Morrison's new X-Men. So around 2001, 2002, Frank Quietly and Grant Morrison take over X-Men makes a big splash. Immediately, Frank Quietly 
um, can't keep up with the monthly deadline. And so uh, Marvel gets, the editor gets uh, Ethan Van Skyver, uh, who is also very slow. And so they hire another artist and Igor Cordy, um, unfortunately, it's this is one of these kids, you've heard about this in X-Men. It's one of these cases where like he drew an issue and they're like, oh, by the way, can you also draw the issue before the issue you just drew? Because we're that much, <laughs> we're that much having a deadline trouble. Um, Igor Cordy's art, um, at the same time, he was also drawing uh, Cable, which got relaunched as Soldier X. Yep. And that book, very much, if you like squint and take out the fact that the main guy's eye glows and his arm is like silver. Uh, actually, that doesn't, that doesn't seem too far away from G.I. Joe. Um, that book, uh, Igor Cordy's work on Cable and Soldier X, feels a lot like G.I. Joe. And there is a, there's a, a fleshiness to how he draws faces. And he's got a really lovely inking technique that is not like pretty or slick. Uh, it's not like the John Royal Falcon cover that we see on this issue. It's it's much more like the, you know, the, these like different faces that Cooper Bayal is drawing in this in this issue, where someone's nose is a little taller, someone's eyes are a little squintier, someone's cheekbones are a little higher, someone's eyebrows are a little bushier, and Cordy, you know, did a bunch of other stuff. He he uh, did some issues of Extreme X Men, and he uh, did some Tarzan crossovers with Dark Horse. I think he did. Batman Tarzan, I think. Um, but uh, he's someone from like 20 years ago who sort of at the time I was like, man, I wish this guy would draw G.I. Joe somehow magically. And um, uh, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of that here. I, I don't think there's any connection necessarily. But um, and then the other comment that I want to make is uh, there's a uh, there's a sound effect. It's on uh, it's on page 17. It's the final panel where um, it's right after Falcon is shot and it's the final panel where he's now falling into the, into the swamp and Fastdraw says, I know the PKM gunner. And there's a great sound effect. Sploot. Of <laughs> Falcon hitting the water. God, the pose of Falcon hitting the water. That's great. Just the perfect amount of weight, perfect amount of gravity. He's really falling there, but he, he looks heavy. You know, that that's a 200 pound man. Uh, and this happens every so often. I, I think letterers, I think letterers pick the colors for lettering sound effects. I think that's done at that stage, and it's not the color artist uh -huh. who colors sound effects. So uh, Neil Yuotake has picked this sort of like dark, dark, dark gray, and then the outlines on the letters are too thick, and so the S and the P are really hard to read, and it almost becomes invisible. It almost just looks like sort of more lines in the swamp water. Like right. lines, okay. like yeah. texture, okay. but that's the sound effect. That's the sound of, of Falcon hitting the water, sploot, and it's awesome. <laughs> but uh, it is it is an artistic or technical error that I can't see it better, and that makes me a little sad. Yeah, I was pausing because it, it took me this long to actually find <laughs> find the thing because uh, it was uh, so uh, let's say subtle. Uh, <laughs> I, I read my comics with, I, you know, my I'm like two inches or two inches from my nose and I read comics frowning. So <laughs> I read comics frowning. Uh, it's uh, yeah. Let's put that on a business card. <laughs> uh, some of my other points that I'd observed were um, it's it's just cool to see fast straw um, 
uh, armored without uh, without all his gear it's um you know as as we talked with with cuba ball he put some thought into that and um you know pulled pulled it off you can immediately figure out figure out who it's supposed to be um you know without his uh all of his normal kind of you know fully fleshed out um out toy accurate uh outfit and it you know from storytelling purposes makes uh absolute sense and uh it looks cool yeah it's um you know i i always want to see joe's like with their proper gear you know it's like I don't want to see them in civilian clothes or I don't want to see, you know, like gung ho should be wearing uh, like a coat, a white coat in the Arctic. But I also just want to see gung ho in his like normal costume. Um, so if you said to me like, oh, half this issue is going to have fast draw without his helmet and without his missile launcher, and he's not going to use this missile launcher, I'd say, oh, but that's what he's for. That's so cool. <laughs> um, but since we sort of back into seeing fast draw like oh wait that's fast draw like oh yeah it makes sense he doesn't have his gear because he's a prisoner uh that is that is very cool um, and and my uh, another thought that i i had sort of just reading this was how it's sort of continuing a trend of slightly looking back into the history of gi joe and having that influence the the present day story so as i'm thinking of the likes of you know so we've, we've got this parallel you know sorry this this is basically a prologue into issue 60 uh, you know and recently we've seen sarawak sally from the early days of special missions we've had a return to cobra island which hasn't been seen at all during the the idw run um there's probably other you know instances of of, of looking back and it's sort of just continuing continuing that kind of trend of you know it feels like the book is now and it's got momentum but but it's also being informed by what's what's come before and um yeah i don't i doubt anyone would have said yes give me that prologue to issue 60 um at this point in in time but we've got it and it absolutely works yeah i wonder about larry hama's thought process if he you know like pulls a soft cover of classic gi joe volume i guess six off his shelf and he flips through it and he says like, Oh yeah, I remember that character that I introduced. Uh, what can I make of this? Or if Tom Waltz, you know, has it back and forth with him and says, Hey, how about a flashback about one of these three guys? Or um, if, you know, like Hama has, you know, based all of these characters off of people he knows and people come and go in your life. So, you know, maybe in 1988, when issue 60 came out, Hama based the spook and the general off of two people he knew. And maybe in the last year, one or two of those people like cycled back into or out of Hama's life. And he thought, oh, yeah, that's uh, the spook and the general. Like, huh, <laughs> let, me, let me see what I can do with that. And uh, I, I do think that in a, in a general sense that these flashbacks offer a kind of uh, I don't want to say safety, but there's a little less risk. Well, I don't like that word either. Um, you know, n n characters haven't died yet, and and you can create something new out of this more established um, status quo. And uh, all the new stuff, it's it's a lot harder to write like an issue, you know, 295 that takes place after. 294 other issues of stuff because you and the editor and the you know assistant and the research specialist have to some to some extent remember everything that has happened 
so you don't uh, like repeat anything, much less contradict something. And if you just just like, well, you know, Falcon's not a character that we've done much with. Let me do something with Falcon. Like, you know, it's a little, again, I don't want to say safer or easier, but maybe less fraught. It's like, well, mm -hmm. how Falcon joined the team. And I'm I'm very happy to see that. I want to interrupt myself and uh, just wanna, <laughs> I just want to, I want to finish. Um, uh, when I was talking about page 10 uh, a little while ago, um, where I was saying it had a lot of, um, this is the page where Falcon is finally shooting the bad guy and there are these three like italicized panels above uh -huh. and law is both getting pushed out of the way and also jumping and lunging for the gun um the the comment that was in my head that i wanted to to say aloud is um if you listen to our other episodes where we talk about the devil's due issues uh recently i was giving um the cover to devil's due issue 26 a hard time for having no rhythm or maybe even having a bad rhythm that there were Joes standing there and the arrangement, uh, there was nothing lyrical about it, right? It wasn't just that they were stiff. It was that it sort of just felt like very arbitrarily placed. And the two characters on the top right, sort of like, you know, Tim Seeley, the artist, in my estimation, sort of ran out of like things for them to do. And this isn't a perfect comparison because this big panel here in issue 288 of Falcon shooting the bad guy and Law and Fast Draw getting out of the way it's not a cover and it's got fewer characters and fewer elements, even if you count the trees. But this is an example of this panel on this page. This page has great rhythm. The placement of elements, it's like if you were to take all the characters and black them out, if you were to take all the characters and all the trees and black them out, where there's negative space, where there's positive space, how this page leads your eye across it, it's really pretty and it's really satisfying. And that's maybe the point I was trying to make with that issue to uh, cover to issue 26. But back to issue 288. So yeah, I think that was the main things I wanted to talk about. Um, should, are we okay to move on to I Spy? Yeah. I Spy with my little eye. Okay, so my first I Spy was the page where Falcon reveals his, his vehicle and um, it, it's based on the real world Argo ATV, which uh, in G.I. Joe, uh, sort of lexicon uh, informs the uh, adventure team vehicle so it's uh, it's kind of a nice kind of you know look back to to gi joe history and uh, i guess the real world vehicles that that inspired the uh, the gi joe toys of the time um but you're you're not saying it's the adventure team vehicle in this issue you're saying there's a there's a, a yeah i'm saying you look you look at it yeah, you look at it, connection. and as a G exactly, you look at it, and as a GI Joe fan, you, you'd think, "Oh, that's the uh, Adventure Team vehicle," uh, but it, it's actually the real world Argo ATV, which is the vehicle that inspired the Adventure Team vehicle. Um, my eye spy is that uh, after our Law Spotlight issue, where we <laughs> yeah. where we noted that Law had a new name, which mm -hmm. um, connected him more concretely to the Hasbro employee uh, after whom the action figure was um, likened. Law in this issue is back to his uh, actual name uh, as designated in his toy file card. Yes, so we've got a Levine, not a Bazigian that we saw in 277 
And 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 to go back to our uh, review of two seven seven, we were we were very hard on that fact, as if it was uh, an error. And the IDW research specialist on, made a Facebook comment that uh, maybe sometimes things like that are done on purpose as a fun uh, wink and a nod. And when I read that comment, I thought, yeah, it's, it's, that's that's right. Everyone everyone involved actually knew what was going on, and that's uh, that's not a mistake that got by seven different people. That's a uh, in in that law issue, saying that law's name in the issue was was Bazigian, uh, was was a wink and a nod, and not not a not a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, ev- and even if it was, it, you know, it can still be a bit of a fun uh, wink. Uh, yes. That aside, yes. I don't have any other. No, I think I've I've covered all of mine. Um, um, I, I did have a. It's. Um, it's, 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 it's somewhere between I spy and a favorite line because uh-huh. <laughs> it's a visual. It's not something that anyone says, but I think my favorite thing that I see in this issue, actually, I mean, besides all these great faces and all that all over again is fast draws, red gloves. And, um, <laughs> there are in in character design and in art sometimes when you're drawing something or you see someone has drawn or painted something there is just a little there's just a little one thing that is either um uh i've already used i've already used this figure of speech in this episode but it, it's just a little button it's just a little just a little bit of like bonus like after dinner mint and for example actually on the cover to this issue on John Royal's cover where Falcon is running the thing that like the, the fun little thing about that cover is the insignia on Falcon's beret, right? It's just a small little detail. It's a little bit of color. I know that it's like accurate. So when I say it's fun, I don't mean, um, I don't mean to like not take it seriously. And, and by contrast, uh, Cooper Bale's cover, cover B, um, doesn't have anything like this. And I, and I don't say that as an insult. It's just not a cover that like wanted anything like that. So throughout this issue, like, I, I know this is, I know this is abstract. I'm getting there throughout this issue. We sort of, we sort of back into like, Oh wait, there are two other Joes or maybe three because one of them got shot in this story and it's a rescue mission and like, Oh, Hey, there's fast draw. That is a crazy action figure that either <laughs> does, that either doesn't make sense, but it's like, it's, it's a, you know, the GI Joe toy line gets a little wacky for 87 and 88 with more and more big accessories. Or if it's a real thing, it's like, cool, let's see that work in this comic because that's so much fun. But then you look at his actual, like actual color choices for the action figure and it's like, there's a lot, you know, there's blue and there's green and there's gray and there's uh, red. So the first two or three panels where we see Fast Draw in this issue, his hands are not visible because he's tied up or they're cropped out of the panel. And then all of a sudden, I see these bright red gloves on page, I don't know, 11. And then I keep seeing them. And uh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to explain it any better than this. But there's a certain delight in that. Like, this isn't like, oh, you know, colorist Jay Brown got it right. Because, you know, I'm I'm not meaning to damn by faint praise. It's like, no, he's like following the model. Fast Draw has red gloves. He gets red gloves. I think I'm sort of reacting to this very small, like, it's unrealistic, you know, that in the real world, you'd have a guy with red gloves, like, have <laughs> miss- missiles on his backpack like this. But 
we're in the world of G.I. Joe, and Gung Ho is just going to go to the Arctic wearing his vest. And uh, I just love every couple of panels for the rest of the issue, seeing these bright red gloves, because it sort of reminds me that A, it's like, no, no, these are the toys. This is this, like, you know, this thing from childhood that I, that I like. And two, uh, like, no one's running from it in this issue. It's like, no, he's in his G.I. Joe costume. It's not like it's covered in mud or it's covered in ash or he, like, took his gloves off because he's a prisoner. It's like, no, no, Gung-Ho, ha- Gung-Ho is wearing his vest in the Arctic in this issue. Uh, so um it's it's not a line of dialogue and it's not it's not an i spy because i spy is sometimes like easter eggs or 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 mistakes it's like i i think i like that it's owning it and that it sort of is a surprise halfway through the issue cool Um, (laughs) (laughs) did you have any errors in this uh detected in this issue i i did not yeah, me neither. I think um, I think we're on a on a first. <laughs> uh, I can't. I I I might be wrong, but I I've I've got a suspicion that this might be the first time that uh, that we've been through all the way through an issue and not not had something to to say as an error. But um, but yeah, there we go. Either either we've we've missed something or this is uh is perfect in every way. <laughs> So let's move on to Hammer Time, shall we? Stop! Hammer Time! Time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanner, rubber, who's it, blue ninjas? And some more sucking chest wounds. Hammer Time! Uh, There we go. So, (laughs) um... Hammer hammerisms that I detected uh, this uh, this time. We've got some, I guess, very specific weaponry, machinery. Um, you know, you know, between all the different characters, the the rockets, the the type of weapons that the militia's using, the the, the shotgun that Falcons got, all of these kind of things, the the helicopter. Uh, so that's 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 very uh, Larry, but I won't dwell on that. Um, the the specific hammerism that I really wanted to call out and pay attention to was the uh, dog having the last line of dialogue for the issue <laughs> so <laughs> we had uh would you like to perform that line of dialogue <laughs> let me see so uh let me uh, sorry order i don't what sort of accent would uh would order have where do we think he's come from possibly uh, uh he's a he's a german um what's the other name for alsatian he's a German Shepherd. German Shepherd. German Shepherd, isn't he? So, so possibly slightly German. Germanic. You're giving this um, a lot of thought. Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and well well paid off all that thought. <laughs> um, wait, tell me about this. How is how is this a homism that the dog gets the last word? So the dog gets the last. Uh, I, I I didn't do an exhaustive amount of research, but uh, there's there's this issue. Uh, there's also uh, issue seventy nine. Issue 277 and issue 279 all have the dogs having uh, the last line of dialogue for the issue. I, d- I just want to point out that you have you have all those examples, and yet that's not an exhaustive search. Um, well, you know, Hama is a dog owner, and I think there's I think there's an element to his writing where 
he's he's gonna play along you know like not not like this is for kids but like everyone wants just everyone just wants to have a good time you know reading these <laughs> comics and like the the action figures with with pets sold better so they they did more and more they did one every uh-huh. year and they kept doing it and i think on some level hama has to realize that as you know, challenging as G.I. Joe is to write because all the characters and gear and as silly as it is because, you know, this guy's got missiles on his backpack and red gloves. Although I'm, I'm sorry, everyone, if that's a real military thing, I, I apologize. But, um, you know, like kids, kids like dogs and it's like, how, you know, how do you end this? This reminds uh, this reminds me this where order gets the last word. This reminds me of the convention of like every episode of Thundercats. And and that has this has nothing to do with Larry Hama because Larry, <laughs> Larry Hama didn't work on the Thundercats TV show or any TV shows like this in the 80s. But um, this convention where someone says something funny at the end of the episode and then everyone laughs and the camera pulls back as they laugh. And it's not quite what's happening here because it's not the Joes that are laughing, but it feels like it's sort of speaking the same language of uh, it's like, yep, there's a dog, and it's gonna steal the spotlight for a moment. <laughs> and I think, I think Cuba Bull said something along the lines of that the dog was meant to have a smile, and he's like, "How do I draw a dog <laughs> smiling?" <laughs> uh, right, right. Um, I, I will say, as a pet owner, dogs smiling and cats smiling, it is real, but it's very subtle. <laughs> um, uh, do you have more uh, hamaisms? Um, yeah, we had, um, oh no, so that was it for the hammerisms. I've got some colloquialisms. There used to be a pudding that was over-egged. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town. A comic book writer of of some renown he's using real world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples it's a larry hammer colloquialism he's talking gi joe and all its heroism can you guess what it is is it something new now listeners larry drops a slice of real life on you carson came up with a a great one earlier he talked about uh starting with a uh, as a butter bar rather than a pfc so butter bar sort of being being the uh, the bar that uh, on the uniform that you would you would have to denote the rank following the entering the rotc program and not going in as a pfc so rotc the reserve officers training corps is a group of college and university based officer training programs for training commissioned officers of the united states armed forces and the PFC is private first class uh, military rank held by junior enlisted personnel. Um, so yeah, the you know deciphering the the lingo of that is is all about you know going into going to college is a would be a better route. Uh, you know, start off higher up in the ranks rather than going going in right at the very bottom. I I have a comment about the letters page for this issue. Oh. And um, and this happened in a in a previous issue where um, someone important in the world of GI Joe had died, and so instead of letters for the issue, there was a memorial. Uh, and here, um, Tom Waltz really wants to alert Joe fans to this new miniseries 
uh, for G.I. Joe that's in the world of the animated series from the 80s. And so instead of one or two letters in this letters page, there are four images hyping this upcoming miniseries, G.I. Joe Saturday Morning Adventures. And if Tom Waltz, you know, if 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 he can get more eyeballs on this series, which looks really fun and great, and I'm all for, and I can't wait to do an episode with you and maybe Jay about it in the future, uh, Tom Waltz totally can and should. And also, because letters pages are always the last things to get assembled um, for comics before they're sent off to the you know the printer. Uh, if Tom Waltz uh, or Megan Brown are behind schedule, and it's like let's just run something, and we don't have to like find a letter and get Larry to answer it. Uh, that's totally fine. But um, the letters page in the G.I. Joe comic is really important because it's it's the it's the capstone to this like 40 year dialogue that we, the fans and readers have with Hama. You know, the previous 20 or 22 pages are like his, you know, creativity and the artists. And then the letters page, even if it's just like, you know, two kids in the 80s writing in saying, Scarlet's my favorite character, have Scarlet <laughs> in more issues or, you know, whatever. It's like, I don't understand why Cobra Commander died in the cartoon. It's like, well, we don't really work on the cartoon. This is the <laughs> Thanks for writing, kid. Um, uh, you know, particularly since uh, sales of this comic are not as high as they used to be in the 80s and there isn't a robust, like, IDW discussion board where like Postbox the Pit has an online version that people chime in and then like the editors or the writer like also chime in. These letters are really important to me. And now another issue without a letter and a response is a little bit of a bummer, particularly since the following uh, three, four, five, six, seven pages are ads. And so like Tom Waltz, if you need a break or you really need to promote this book, definitely do that. But like, I would have rathered one or two letters and like, you know, in a month, like the next page or the inside back cover are going to be that cover of Cobra Commander in the animation mode holding like Aladdin's lamp. So a uh, little, disappoint <laughs> little disappointed by that. Also, it's just hilarious because I turn the page and it's like, oh, I don't get letters. Like, well, that's a cool image. And then I look on the opposing page, which is a, an ad for the Rob Liefeld uh, Snake Eyes Dead, <laughs> Dead Game collection. Um, and I never talked about this. Maybe I will in my blog upcoming. But the final issue of that miniseries was bananas. But the, the tagline at the bottom of this ad is, how long can Snake Eyes keep his secret past and buried? And uh, you all know my thoughts on this miniseries uh, on this miniseries from my very, very long blog post on the first issue. But I don't remember there being much in the way in this miniseries of like Snake Eyes being worried about his uh, past staying buried. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I am very excited about G.I. Joe Saturday Morning Adventures. Uh, and I, it's fun that it it sort of has a, quote, pilot in, an, in a regular Larry Hama issue of G.I. Joe. Yeah, because of course Stan Shoning, who we we spoke to uh, when it came out, and un un sort of unveiled that animation esque uh, art style on uh, on the Untold Tales issue, the the snow mission uh, that that was in the in the pages of the regular book. My uh, my final comment on this issue uh, will sound a bit like a repeat, so I'll keep it short. Um, or oh, do you want to wrap it up in your yo joage? Uh, yeah. So. 
you know, I have I have strong feelings about the coloring in in the ongoing GI Joe monthly series, and um, uh, I think that the more spotted blacks in the art, we we both in this issue and in the previous issue, I think the better Jay Brown's coloring works for the book, because I find some of uh, some of the gradients and some of the the patterns um, to be um, too busy. Uh, and and my my sort of example here is the the pages where the Joes and these bad guys are out in the woods and there are trees behind them. And um, Jay Brown uses a sort of a busy pattern of like a base green with some like highlights of more of a yellow green on top of them for his pattern for how to color trees. And I think that can work when the artists uh, sort of don't draw trees. They just draw like an outline, although I don't love it. But um, Kubra Bayal here is actually describing trees, the shape of trees with his inking. I'm actually thinking of uh, maybe the page where the Joes are running to the ATV, the reveal of the ATV. That, that might be a good one, where the three Joes are running to the ATV that's in the foreground. Based on the coloring of that panel, all of the background foliage is like the most important thing in the panel because it's it's quite busy. And I would I would just treat that as like one uniform uh, sort of dull or medium green and let the Joes pop uh, from it. And, and this kind of thing happens uh, a lot in this issue where background's a little busier than I would like. Uh, this, this really gorgeous panel of Falcon on page three, the silent panel, the wordless panel, where young Falcon in the flashback is looking at the at the like the info chart about the green berets and he's reacting to this advice he just got from the the uh, the older guy in in the panel the background color is the same color as falcon's complexion which is um which is a not not the choice i would make um anyway so uh um you know i i, I would always like a, a different approach to color in this book but i think um the art is so strong in this issue. The colors uh, worked pretty well in this issue. Um, good story, not as complex as we have seen, not as many moving parts as you said at the beginning. Wonderful to check in with some characters we haven't seen in a while, uh, a mission that we didn't know about. Tying it in with a previous issue, um, extraordinary drawing, acting, layout, action, uh, technique, poses, anatomy. Issue looks great. Eight. Wow, that's about that's about as high as you've gone. Have we had an eight before? Do you think? I think we might have had a, a one or two, but uh, yeah, a big uh, stamp of approval given that the uh, paper stock has not <laughs> changed. <laughs> so uh, well, you're done. Yeah, I, I I think I'd I'd echo all of all of that. It it looks great. Um, Cuba Bowl has been. It was a was a great match for for the book and and like you i didn't i didn't really know his work beforehand so was a little bit nervous but um you know great um great art uh you know and very thoughtful storytelling and execution you know great story from from larry it's a, a flashback that i didn't know i wanted to see but um but you know now, now that i read it you know it, it's uh it's a great it's a great story and and wasn't wasn't one i knew i wanted until i was given given it to, to me but um i think the the only the only slight distractions i like to see momentum with the gi joe story i like the you know to see the ongoing world building and, and so on so 
always a, a, a little bit frustrated when we're looking back to the past that that the the you know ongoing story is is sort of put to put to the side particularly as you know we only get one issue uh, a month so so that would be you know one of my little niggles but but that's only minor Ho- hopefully hopefully some of the seeds that are planted in this issue might be followed up at some point so maybe we might see more from the mysterious spook in general or or something along those those lines maybe we'll find out a little bit more uh, and and some of the yeah some of the things that have been planted here uh, are not isolated to this one issue so never know uh, i th- i think i can't let you i can't i can't score under you tim given our, our normal uh, our normal calibration of scores so so i think I, i'm forced into a situation where i probably have to give this a 9 and, I mean, if, if you I'm really, happy. if you really only I'm, think it's an eight or an eight and a half, that's what. You... <laughs> yeah, so maybe an eight and a half, but but uh, or, or or towards pushing towards a nine. Uh, but yeah, I, I very much enjoyed this this story, um, and and there aren't really any quibbles with it uh, at all. It's um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great issue. Holds, uh, you know, will, will hold itself high in uh, regard to to this um, IDW era of uh, of larry hammer's uh ARA issues um right up there excellent so i think uh we are that that is it for discussing that issue really so um next time well, on between, uh, between our between our previous episode where we discussed this issue and then the first exactly yeah half yeah of this only... episode where we discussed it with someone else i feel like we we, <laughs> we have we have well covered it yeah that that issue that you probably took a quarter of an hour to read we've we've been talking about it for four hours so it's not too bad <laughs> the um next time on uh talking joe uh we will be talking about the next issue 289 uh which is a helix and dawn issue and over on our devil's juice show we are continuing to uh shine a spotlight back into the deepest depths of history in 2004 when uh, the Devil's Due series was coming out. We're back on the main series with issue 26 and we'll continue on uh, through that run. So uh, join us uh, over for, for that. You can find us in the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has all of those places. We've also got a Facebook group, a Twitter Twitter handle, a Instagram page, and all of that good stuff. We're on Patreon, where the likes of Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, and Justin are all getting early access to episodes, as well as some exclusive content. Uh, Tim, uh, where can people find you? My comic book store is Hub Comics in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I promise I will get back to my blog. I know it's been a while. A realamericanbook.com. And I think um, I, I will shout uh, the praises of your store from over here. Probably one of the best uh, G.I. Joe back issue departments of any bo- uh, comic book store uh, over on the uh, east side of that place they call America. So uh, if you're not too far away from uh, Somerville um, and you're looking to fill in some gaps in your G.I. Joe collection, then uh, it might well be worth the trek across to uh, to Hub 
comics. Cool. So I think that is us done. But remember, nobody bits talking Joe, a real American podcast. <laughs> With a guy from America, a guy who was in his car talking to us from some layby, and also me in England. Laters. <laughs> <laughs>